Are you ready to meet the moment? Ozzy and our friends at Chevrolet are proud to present Real Talk, Real Change to help foster racial equality in America. And we're inviting you to help. Join me, Carlos Watson, as I talk with key leaders from across the country about racial disparities in America's healthcare system. Look for The Carlos Watson Show and Real Talk, Real Change on YouTube and subscribe. Or download The Carlos Watson Show wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to another episode of Grapple's 90s flashback series. I'm Beto. I'm Joe. And I'm JP. And joining us again to head back to 1997, it's BWE's Martin Bushby. Oh, thanks for having me back. I uh, thought I might have been cancelled after my uh, views on the uh, Thor Osman theme tune from last time. But yeah, I really <laughs> appreciate you uh, having me back on. I mean, it's funny watching this time period back, so we said on the last one, uh, 97, you know, it's just one of the best years in wrestling. I mean, uh, true, Raw isn't as flash as Nitro, but still tons of good stuff that um, I managed to get through in the past couple of weeks. Been, it's been fun catching up these last couple of weeks, hasn't it? But yeah, I'm hoping uh, you're not going to have any uh, controversial takes like you did on that last podcast because, God, you, you've been getting pelters from all <laughs> we'll corners see. of the internet, aren't Have you had any yeah, couple... big Brian Christopher fan? That's what we're going to find out <laughs> by the end of this. People are just big fans of the, yeah, that, uh, the original Too Cool theme or something. Like, <laughs> I, I, honestly, like, I feel bad, Martin, because we used. We, it was, this was Joe's idea, so I'm blaming Joe. We trolled you with the Four Horsemen theme in the uh, episode after, and you've just been getting pelters from all corners. Has anybody backed you up? Are you still on an island on the Four Horsemen theme? I think you are. Uh, no, I think it was you guys and maybe four or five people getting butthurt about it on Twitter. About my <laughs> I, I had a few messages from people I know <laughs> saying, like, Martin's opinion on this Four Horsemen theme tune, shocking. I got it too. Yeah, I got a terrible. couple as well. <laughs> yeah. Oh, Martin. Yeah. You set the internet alight. What are you going to do? This I know. <laughs> Mate, if you don't like Owen Hart's music, that's going to be an issue. On <laughs> oh, we're opening with that. Like, I feel like that. I already made that decision mentally. I thought, bring that music up at some point, just so I've got an excuse to use it as the intro or the outro. That is, that's a tune, that one. Oh. No Farmer's Daughter. What's no? that? Oh, we'll come to it later on. Don't you worry. Farmer's Daughter? Yeah. Sure, you know, being an Irish, when you know a few things about Farmer's Daughters, don't you? <laughs> <That's>... Fuck off. Oh. <laughs> uh... Degenerates already. Oh, God. Yeah, yeah, loving these trips back to 97. Mm. I was young and stuff, and I didn't have to care about anything, and there wasn't a global <laughs> <Yeah>. pandemic. <laughs> awesome time. Happy to go and live there again. That, that's kind of what's blowing my mind. It's like, I don't know whether it's because it happened in my formative years, and I'm 13 at the time of all this happening, but like, there are definitely times where we were like, on either show, we review like a progress show. And I'm literally having to look up my notes to remember what happened in the show I watched two hours ago. Whereas I put, I actually finished Canadian Stampede tonight uh, and then wrapped up with a bit of the uh, the raw that came after it. And like there were just moments in the show where I reckon I could have blagged it. We could have done this podcast that I could probably could have given you thoughts on every match just based on mm. my memory from like how many years ago now? 23 years ago? Like I easily mm. could have done it. Like I, whereas like yeah, things that happened last week and two weeks ago, I can barely remember. Again, I don't know if that's like a formative years type of thing or if it's just the difference between, you know, wrestling then and now. I think it's watching stuff over and over. So, like, back in the day, I would watch stuff just Mm. on repeat because I only had a a limited selection of VHSs. Mm. So I would just 
I, I could tell you like every single moment from say the 2000 Royal Rumble. I know who's coming in next in the Rumble. Uh, it's ridiculous how much I can sort of just know out of my head from those sorts of shows that I would have had on VHS back in the day. Whereas now, I think there's such a churn of content that you watch stuff once, you move on, you kind of forget about it. Mm. So I think there is a difference regarding that. I wonder if like younger uh, or kids of a sort of our age when we would have watched this sort of thing are going to have those same sort of memories because they do have access to such a you know broad amount of content so it's going to be interesting going forward i think yeah i always think that when people talk about that like oh yeah imagine people doing retro raw retro raw reviews on like the pandemic period like is that really going to happen in 20 years are brian and Vinny going to be sat down look are we going to be sat down <laughs> looking at those shows i doubt it you know no, no. like <laughs> no, no, no. Uh, but even like my little brother was into wrestling for a little while and he was dead into sheamus and john cena are they just like his heroes from his childhood that he'll remember in 15 years i don't know yeah, it's yeah. a weird one, isn't it? Because it's like Joe says, I mean, VHSs were pretty expensive, especially WWF ones, weren't they? They must have been about 15, 16 pounds, so it was like a big thing getting one of them. And I remember going through all the Power Slam reviews of like videotapes and what they reviewed as like an A or a B. And I remember picking this one for like my birthday. It must have been the year after it happened and then just watching it over and over again. And my brother was into wrestling during that time. And I think we must have watched this main event about five or six times after we got that VHS. Yeah, I remember getting this off a mate at school, so I wouldn't have watched this until it would have been either the year 2000 or very early 2001. And I remember, I remember keeping the VHS for quite a while and watching it several times because I thought it was that good a show. I recorded it off... Um, I was in student digs at the time. I was student, uh, not in halls. I would uh, I'd just sort of moved out. And we had Sky... And we could um, basically get, uh, so I would record it on VHS. And so like, there's a lot of those in in your houses that I would have seen kind of a good few times over that period. And it was also the period where other people were interested in wrestling because of sort of the Monday night where it sort of see, it was see, seeping into the consciousness at that point in time. But going back, yeah, and so you're always going to have these things in your memory. I also think as well, and this is one of the big points of it, having one wwf show to watch in like like a week at that point in time even raw feels somewhat special at that point in time there isn't a second program that dilutes it and then further off brands like you say with the kind of too much content out there and it's two hours and it's i found i don't know what you guys did like the nitros and it's not as good as the nitros still so much of an easy watch Oh yeah, I think it's it's the length as well that kind of helps as well, doesn't it? Yeah. Uh, and there's only certain things to to kind of pay your mind to. Like this is definitely this is the period where I'm pretty sure I'd already started that watching Nitro from what eight till nine and then no nine till ten wasn't it? And then immediately because it was the hour version, then immediately watching Raw, mm-hmm. and then not long after that doing the whole thing where I think I mentioned last time watching Nitro, then watching Thunder, then watching the Raw repeat in the morning, and it was a breeze compared to like trying to keep up with wrestling now. But like my memories are like this this time period. Uh, because I, I, one note I kind of had about, you know, we'll talk about the pay-per-view later, was the Alien Your Houses weren't on Skyworthy. And it was a, this this period, I think, was when they'd started being on Sky. Because yeah. I do remember, because I didn't watch the, sh- the pay-per-view live, but I do remember watching it maybe the day after. And distinctly remember, like, when Steve Austin's getting up to his shenanigans in the main event, cheering so loud that my mum came into the room and told me off. 
Uh, that's like a, <laughs> like a very like it's a very vivid memory I can remember from like a, a childhood doing Stone Cold Stunners on on the bed. So I'm pretty sure that means that I was watching it, you know, on like a tape that I taped off Sky. So I think the In Your House were were being actually shown over here. I don't know when that started. It must have been like relatively late in the run because I don't think at least the first few were shown. Wait, when you were doing that, Benno, was your mum like confiscating? WWF tapes and things like that when you were like breaking the bed and that. I remember me and my brother's only like two years older than me, so we were wrestling all the time and then it had inevitably turned into something more serious. And you know, my mum and dad would come home and like one of us would be like, oh, blah, blah, smash my head into like the <laughs> carpet or whatever. And then my mum always used to confiscate our WWF tapes and then forget that she'd confiscated them when we'd find them all in the garage or something. She knows when it hurts, that's what it is. Uh, she knows when it hurts, yeah. <laughs> I think my mum was quite shocked that I could do a really good figure four leg lock and that's just the result of having those um wcw tapes <laughs> did you know what figure four 90s. leg lock was she didn't know but i did it to my uncle keith <laughs> um he and he didn't hurt him he he, he just was completely no sold it whereas if i did it to my cousin fuck me like he he sold it it was awesome sold it like it was flair was himself good finisher for backyard wrestling like the figure four because you can make that really hurt even though it's a bit ridiculous the move itself oh yeah and the uh, the perfect plex was always a good one because people can't get out it was basically a small yeah. package but i used to always use that as a finisher cross face mate get someone <laughs> to the ground stick it on easy uh, boston crab you could really do some oh yeah damage. yeah my mate got really hurt on that another one we may try to do their aim um, when, Sh- when sean started doing the frankensteiner on rose he tried to do it but i think he invented the reverse frankensteiner before anyone was really <laughs> doing it the reverse rana and literally almost killed me little brother like it was horrible uh, the damage we could have all done to each other doing pile drivers on beds and all kinds like really good yeah that was that. the thing at primary school i remember everyone was always trying to do a pile driver on the fucking concrete school playground and you think back and you're like that is just absolutely insane we're all trying to like drive each of those heads into concrete <laughs> the pros can't even do it never mind like yeah it was good school yards but has anyone got yeah has anyone got like memories like this period of watching it like i raw was still fridays wasn't it with with nitro like i remember that i think there was they were still doing the highlights like i think what was that show they used to have that was hosted by pettingill uh action zone was or a name like that. I'm sure. Mm, the action zone was around. Yeah, I think that was still around at the time. But I was definitely watching the Raws as they happened. Were you, JP? Were you kind of. Or were you just a pay per views man? Yeah. No, no, no. I was watching the Raws as well because at that point in time, I had access to the internet because being uh, at university. So I was going online, being able to sort of read what happened. I was kind of really fully ensconced in the Monday night war at that point in time mm. it was it was fascinating and having been a long-term wcw fan it was kind of it was just uncharted territory because i'd never at any point had kind of deluded myself that it was it was bigger than that at that point in time so yeah i was i was watching so you had sky in a student house did you yeah we did we got cabling so we wanted to watch the football as well and you gotta remember arsenal winning the you know it was it, at that point in time it was arsenal under wenger so I wanted as much football and wrestling content as I could get. Were you the but, only student house that you knew of that had a proper Sky package? There was a couple, but right. in the area where I lived in Hounslow, no. Wasn't this around the same time period where it was like cable and everyone had a chip cable box? So yeah, no we, one was actually paying for it. We had cable, not like a satellite dish. But I didn't have chipped cable, and I fucking loved that. Yeah. Oh, I'd have killed for that. <laughs> That's what ruined all the cable companies, didn't it? Because everyone just got a chip box. And I think that's what made Sky like, um, you know, you put like the 
Hard. Telephone wire in the back of the skybox mm. now, so they can send test signals around it, so they see that you've not got a fucking dodgy box or something. Oh yeah, I've had that before. Like when back when I had Skyway, because I don't think I had it connected to the phone line, and I think they used the phone line to double check. I remember them sending us warning letters saying we needed to connect it up to prove that it was the the right box or something like that. So it still happens these days. Still, uh, still possible to do. <laughs> Um, chipping was a big thing though, wasn't it? Chip PlayStations oh, as well. Yeah, yeah. Big... yeah. The chip shop near Especially me was big. Jap- Japanese games for PlayStations. I had a few, I knew a few people had their PlayStations chips so they could play like JRPGs stuff mm. like that on PlayStation. Were um, swap shops a big thing in your areas? Did you have that where you could go and like? Because I, I remember having like probably FIFA '97. I think it would have been 97 or 98 and go like there was a little shop in like our local shopping market where for a fiver you could swap it for another like uh, whether it was PlayStation 1 I think it might have been PlayStation 1 at that point game for like similar value uh, so they just clean up just getting get mug kids like me going once a week to swap me game for a fiver and it's soon add up was that just a Liverpool thing like it was in Bootle Strand our one so I don't know if that, uh, that translated to the rest no. of the country no we had that in uh, Robert Market Johnny Joysticks it was called they sold like a lot of if this oh. was a regular spot like that would be the title Johnny that's Joysticks the title. <laughs> <laughs> that's amazing Johnny he had quite the enterprise he had, um, he had a stall at Robert market i think he had a, a shop in maltby as well like an actual shop so entrepreneur get in johnny joysticks jesus that's <laughs> that's gonna stick with me for life what was your kind of attention to all this at that at this time joe was it was it on your radar i had no idea that this was going on uh n- not a clue i would have been how old was i, I would have been year five at school i guess going into year six. Uh, mm. No one at my primary school at this point in time was watching wrestling. I was at quite a small school. Uh, yeah, not a clue. Uh, I think the last time I would have seen any wrestling before this, I reckon, I've tried to work it out before, mm. and I think one of the last things I can remember is Bret Hart in a match where um, someone was trying to make him give up, and then Owen was on the outside, and a towel went in the ring. So I... I think it was the Bret Hart Bob Backlund match for yeah. that Survivor Series '94. That yeah. one, yeah, yeah. I've got the towel in, don't she? I've got and convinces the two. I've got really vague mem- memories of it, so I didn't see any wrestling for a long time, um, and I don't think I saw any wrestling again until the Scratch logo was a thing. So I think it would have been about '98. I would have seen wrestling again, and I was definitely at secondary school. Like when I was at primary school. Like wrestling was not a thing. It wasn't spoken about. No one had wrestling toys or anything. So at this point in time, yeah, I'd n- not a clue this was going on. Were you like, when you did start watching it again, say 98, 99 or wherever it was, were you going back and watching like these 97 shows? Because I was thinking, for me, I, I see myself as like a child of like 1991 as a WWF fan. But the thing about watching it in 1991 was I was watching all the videos from, you know, 87, 88, 89. So it feels mm. like I grew up watching 80s WWF, if that makes sense. Was it kind of the same thing for you or was it years later? Oh, yeah, yeah. I went. So I got back in in like late 99. Uh, and then by like early 2000s was like watching constantly, kind of obsessed with it. And there was someone who I was mates of a school when I was at secondary school who had like massive collection of tapes, used to tape lots of Raws from that period. I think I spoke about them on the last shows. He gave me some like WCW stuff on TNT, like Best of Hogan and some NWO stuff. Mm. And he had a proper 
proper collection of tapes. So I was around his house borrowing tapes off him like constantly. So I caught up on a lot of the pay-per-views. I'd say from 97 onwards. I remember watching a show from 96. I think it was that In Your House Beware of Dog One that oh, he yeah. had on tape. <laughs> I remember just thinking, fucking hell, this is depressing. It's uh, <laughs> like a really bleak, empty atmosphere. Wasn't fun to watch. I and mean, then the 97 stuff seemed like a lot of fun. Um, so he had loads of 97 tapes. I remember hearing like about the Survivor Series stuff and then borrowing that off him and being kind of amazed by it, but kind of confused by it. Um, I'm trying to think of what else I would have borrowed off him. SummerSlam 97, I didn't see for years. I didn't see it until I was able to download it because um, he didn't have SummerSlam 97 on tape, but I couldn't find it anywhere. So one of the things I also used to do was go in loads of secondhand shops to try and pick up old wrestling tapes. Um, like I spoke about getting the WCW ones from Cash Converters, mm. but I remember picking up a couple of uh, In Your House shows. I think it was In Your House 2. Is that the one with Michael's Jarrett? Um, I think right, I remember the picking belt. Yeah, picking that up for like 50p in an Oxfam or whatever. So, Amazing. yeah, I caught up, caught up pretty uh, pretty well quite early on with these shows when I started watching. I, I can't remember if I've, I've actually seen all in your houses. I'm pretty sure I have. But, like, the early ones, again, because they weren't showing over here, I was basically catching up. You know, it would be, like, three months later into WF magazine and you'd get, like, the results and the photos and waiting patiently for that. That'd be Because uh, I know Voices of Wrestling are doing, like, an In Your House series right now. That'd be an interesting one to go back and maybe watch them in order and see what I've missed because they're such an easy watch anyway, aren't they? Like, two-hour throw, two throwaway B-shows. Like, they're, they're easy to go mm. back and catch up on. Uh, yeah, and I'm actually not 100% sure, actually, I've seen the entire run myself. Yeah, like, I, haven't, I, I haven't seen them all. They seem really cartoony, the sort of like earlier ones, definitely. Mm, yeah. I was going to say, yeah, fuck, fuck some of that earlier stuff. Do you know <laughs> part of the reason why, though, I think is like we're here in 97, so like there's a bit of an edge to the promotion of this time, but I just find that in your house branding and like the set, so out of place considering mm. like the direction the promotion is going in this time like like you said jp about uh, the fat watching that stuff and the cartoon stuff you mentioned benno it feel oh sorry martin it feels like the presentation here is in the, a cartoony era when we're going into a more adult era i found that kind of jarring watching this yeah, I completely agree because you've still got Vince hamming it up on commentary, aren't you? But then you've got all the stuff in the ring where Shawn Michaels is trying to push the envelope and then, you know, obviously you've got all the, like, you know, the Nation of Domination stuff or like what, what the promos they're doing and then Bret Hart sort of, like, dropping a few swear words. But yet, like you say, some of the presentation still seems like mm. it's from 94, 95, but then you've got all this sort of, like, more edgier stuff happening in the ring. It feels like that. It's kind. Oh, go on, JP. No, I was just gonna say it. It just seemed like he he's throwing shit against the wall and seeing what sticks. Yeah. All over these, all over these roars and Canadian Stampede, and it's kind of fun to watch them see them do stuff. And we're gonna talk about it, but mm. like name checking USWA, ECW, oh, yeah. but at the same UFC. time, what what's the story that Vince is more most engaged with? And you can tell him on commentary, Kane. He's all over that Kane stuff. So there's an element of him being dragged, kicking and screaming. And it's like the kind of set design stuff is like some of the last stuff to go. Yeah. Mm. It, it feels like, to me, it feels like, you know, the way you're like, you know, we watch Dark Side of the Ring now and they keep doing those Russo versus Cornette kind of episodes. Yeah. To me, it feels like that's what it is. He's, he's listening to those two different extremes at the same time. So Cornette's getting like some of these 
let's just say USWA bums like some of the lads they have on the shows. They shouldn't be on Raw in 1997. You know, no. as, as good as they were in the day. You know, seeing the Fantastics on Raw, like they do not look good on Raw. But I feel like yeah, the likes of them and like some of the other tag teams that get brought in and ideas like the the new Blackjacks, that feels very cornet. And then on the other hand, like you said, you know, Vince's reference in ECW and USWA and UFC. At one point he even mentions, you know, when they have Dan Seven on commentary and he's talking about how there's been more deaths in wrestling than in UFC. And I'm like, that is not a very Vince McMahon thing to say. No. But he's even like... <laughs> You know, referencing histories, old real names, gimmicks. I really think, like, yeah, he's getting pulled in one direction by Russo. Mentions the Sean and Brett backstage fights. That's another thing. And then on the other hand, like, yeah, Cornette's still got a bit of influence and kind of... Maybe I'm doing Cornette down too much, but it feels like a lot of, like, the, the lamer stuff. Maybe he's getting encouraged by maybe Cornette and the other, like, older creative members. You know, your Bruce Bridgets and that, who I think was still backstage at this point. Bet Cornette had a big hand in that light heavyweight tournament. Mm, Brian Christopher. Yeah, exactly. That's the kind of light heavyweights he'd be wanting. I don't think you could have picked a better period. I mean, so much happens in this sort of like May, June, July period around all the major stories that everyone's talked mm. about over the years. Obviously, we've got all the Brett Sean stuff, haven't you? You know, Brett's, Brett's heel turn, you know the continuation of Brett Austin and then those Mankind promos. There's just so much stuff going on, like, in that sort of, like, three-month time period. Mm. Yeah, it's, it's one of them. It's like I was watching these shows thinking, you know, I'm, I'm the one, and you've repeated it as well, JP, you know, 1997's my favourite era of wrestling. In the low points on some of these roars, I started to question myself a little bit, but I think the high points are still so good. And like you said, Martin, it is just so interesting, that kind of clash and that kind of... Just growing pains, I think, of moving into a more modern, you know, period and trying to catch up to Nitro that does make it so interesting. And maybe I think maybe for me, the journey of nineteen ninety seven, like as things change and as I, as I'm like a a thirteen year old watching it, can't believe it that wrestlers are swearing and Sable and Sonny are barely wearing any clothes and it's turning <laughs> into a, a much more adult product. I think that changeover to me actually is more fascinating in nineteen ninety seven than maybe when they fully realise it in ninety eight and especially ninety nine. Well, that's having an open mind as well to wrestling. Hmm. And that 97 period feels like the most open mind to wrestling the company have possibly ever had hmm. because they were losing in, in their terms, a war. And, you know, I, I think that term is just overused constantly for what it was. But it's like we said about the weird stuff on this show, but you think about the influences that are here and like you've got the good ones, you've got the bad ones. ECW and UFC, I think, are kind of a positive influence to some extent, mm. especially when you look at the direction they went in. But then when you've got USWA, which had to be the most painfully uncool, unfashionable oh, yeah. promotion in the world. Mate, was it wasn't stuck... cool in 91. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it was stuck in, a, like I don't know, the early 80s, if anything. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but it just sort of shows the mindset to have, right, we need to do something different. What do we do? Let's try this, 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 and this. So you've got all these different like forms and sort of approaches to wrestling that exist on these shows. The cruiserweight stuff when you get Taka, Mitch, and Oku and the great Sasuke as well. You look at that influence. Um, it's great so Sasuke, it's, mate. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> oh. it, it's like the Wild Sasuke. West to some degree, watching these roars, because you've got like... Sabu one minute and then you've got Rockabilly and, and like what's his Head name bangers. the honky tonk man out the there Godwins. and you're like 
this feels like an 80s gimmick alongside like Sabu. Like this is it's just such a bizarre show to watch at this point. Mm. Oh, there's so much weird. When the Headhunters came out. Oh, I was blown up. That blew my mind. I didn't even, I I didn't even remember that happened, JP. No, neither did I. I was like, what the fuck is going on? It, it was just kind of, it's fascinating to watch and it's easy to watch. It's some of it's like, like you guys have said before, it's just completely incoherent. But at the same time, it's a much less complicated show in terms of its formatting than what it's become now. And the way they do things, so much simpler, so much more straightforward. And you just think, of all the lionization of the Attitude Era, they seem to have forgotten some of the key intangibles that made it what it was. Hmm. What did you think to that Headhunters thing? Because apparently, like, Cornette had a meltdown backstage, and that's why they never used them again, because he was did like, he? oh, my God, I've been building up using this tag team, and they were absolutely fucking shit, and then they were like, right, we're never using them again. <laughs> I think they, they blow the... Um... That flying headbutt, don't they? I don't know if it's supposed to be a headcut or a splash. And then the other one, it's a moonsault, which is like Vader's move. So that's weird. But I think also they look about five foot tall, which probably just uh, help the case out. Yeah. But it is, it's like I can, I can imagine Cornet losing his mind because there is complete silence when they first get out there, isn't it? It's just dead. A really awkward brawl. And they hardly race down to the ring either. <laughs> oh, they look terrible, <laughs> yeah. That's the thing, though. I mean, I think... they're too mini Abdullah the Butchers, aren't they? Yeah, basically, that's what it is, isn't it? A couple of, uh... Like, Vince even mentions Abby on commentary, some... doesn't he? Oh. When they're talking yeah. about uh, who's going to join the Nation of Domination, they're throwing names out there. I think they throw Butch Reed. They throw Abdullah the Butcher. Like, coming out of Vince McMahon's mouth, that just sounded so <laughs> odd. Like, it was... But that's the thing, yeah. You see, like, because he was on the bone of his ass, because WCW was battering him, he was just open-minded, and he was willing to kind of listen to ideas. It felt like Heyman had his ear quite a bit as well, obviously, with like the mm-hmm. the heavy ECW usage. What what did you guys make of that, by the way? Because I, to be honest, as a, as an uneducated kid, not really knowing ECW, I remember thinking they did a good like Sabu seemed like fucking cool as fuck when he jumps off like the raw sign um, and just generally like the the table stuff like on one of these raws, like he comes across great. And I remember kind of Taz seeming quite interested, even though, you know, he's a bit short, but, you know, what he looked he looked threatening and a badass. Some of the other lads, though, like, I just, like, Sandman coming out in his pyjamas, and it's like, <laughs> if, you, if you know who the Sandman is, that's cool. But if you don't, he kind of just looks like a lad with a beer belly with pyjamas. I like Tommy Dreamer kind of looks a bit out of place. I remember not thinking they were very cool in the day. I don't know uh, if you guys kind of had that same impression. Or I suppose... You know, yourself, Martin, and, and JP, you guys would have been a bit more informed on who they were. Yeah, oh, been, yeah. I'd watched some tapes, like, 93, 94 of ECW, and then reading about it in Power Slam that they were, like, yep. appearing on WF events. I was like, what the fuck? Mm. They seemed like the most exciting promotion in the world, if you were, like, primarily reading um, Power Slam. And, and in terms of tapes, you'd have to wait a while, so I didn't get to see things like Barely Legal and stuff until sort of early 98 mm. when I ordered them off, off Rob Butcher as well. So it was exciting to me, but yeah, I can appreciate now the benefit of hindsight. It, there were other things they could have done. I would be surprised but um, that they wouldn't have thrown out like someone like the Eliminators. Mm. But then Was Perry Saturn injured at that point? I, I scarcely remember. I think they turned up on a Raw or two, but um, I don't think it's around now. Uh, no New Jack. <laughs> Imagine. <laughs> that was a real new Jack, new Jack in '97. Should have been in the nation. Up on Raw. Oh, oh. <laughs> if he'd said that, 
New Jack in the Nation of Domination. Oh, that would have been awesome. I'd have absolutely loved that. <laughs> what you know the ECW lads? What because the, on the on the network version, which I'm assuming we all watch, they all come out to like the ECW theme. That wasn't a thing yeah. then, was it? Like I'm assuming they came out to like their original music on the actual shows themselves. And if you remember, no, I can't remember. Can't that. remember. To be honest, I did did wonder that at the time. It, it even then would they have played it because mm. it would have been perhaps too big to say play. I mean, they didn't play. That's what I mean. Yeah, it's weird. Else, but... <clears throat> there was a point where RVD came out to Jerry Lawler's themes. Like this, <laughs> yeah. oh yeah, is all kinds of wrong. You're like, this was Rob Van Dam during his Pantera Walk era. Like, yeah, this is wrong. Like, never should he have been coming out to this. Whatever the King's theme is, is it's shit. And it did not suit Rob Van Dam one bit. Wasn't well, he teaming with Lawler in that tag tone? Yeah. That's uh, right. Yeah, yeah that may be yeah. why, yeah. The Mr. Monday Night thing never connected for me. Like, I don't know about you guys, but it just never... It, it never felt legit. Like, it just felt like he was he was just one of the ECW guys. Why is he on the wrong side? Like, because he was still teaming with Sabu, wasn't he? And he was still... Fonzie was still knocking about. Even in ECW, yeah. like, it didn't seem... You know, they used it for Heath. Like, oh, he's, he's Mr. Monday Night. He's the WWF guy. I don't know. I just... Even watching the tapes back, I never really... Oh. It never felt like something you'd buy. Like, he just didn't feel... Like, he was the most un-WWF wrestler in the world at that point. It might, might have made more sense if it was, like, I don't know, Shane Douglas or Candido or something, but... Rob Van Dam, really? At the time, I was very excited by it. Mm. I thought, I, I thought I, it seemed really interesting to me him coming in there, and having, um, and it, it, again, it was someone you were kind of hearing about, sort of being really spectacular. Sure. And it just seemed different and wild. And I think anything around that time. So I was like, kind of really into when wrestlers switched over. I can remember being in the states when and watching the Raw where. Um, Sean Waterman came out and stuff like that. So in that era, it, it kind of, it all kind of gets wrapped up into one with people leaving and going here and there. And it, you've got this kind of like crazy transfer market, basically, haven't you? With people going all over the place. So I was kind of into it. And having seen the the clips of when Lawler appeared in ECW and stuff and the kind of heat that got as well, and that was great. And then mm. they show him on these um, rules, don't they? Oh, yeah, they show a little bit of it, yeah. In between all the plugging of the Stone Cold video, uh, you do get a few of those. Uh, Bought that. <laughs> I, I, I own that too. How uh, was it? Because I, I, well, I remember seeing it, you know, like in the video inserts when you look like inside the case mm. and they've got like videos that they're selling, like so it would have been Silver Vision videos. I remember always thinking, ah, oh, I wonder what that one's like. Never got to see it, unfortunately. Was it any good? The cover, I don't know if JP liked it more than me. The cover is the coolest thing about it because it's Austin with his bloody <laughs> right. face. Yeah. And, and the like, ECW footage. Yeah, that's true. The Because that was the first time I saw that where he's doing like the Hogan yeah. impression and all of that. I forgot about that. Yeah, and the Bischoff stuff. Eric um, Nyquil. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. But basically, it's just then they just throw a load. If I remember rightly, it's just a load of raw hat. They make out, don't they? Like, we're, we're PG and this is this is like TV MA or whatever. It's, it's going to be Stone Cold Steve Austin uncensored. And I think I think if I remember rightly, the most uncensored thing you get, JP, is like, I remember, I distinctly remember like the, the, uh, the closing credits on it. Where like I think Austin part of the video is him beating up all of the production staff, so it's like director Stone Cold, producer Steve Austin, like and it's yeah. all like it's basically Austin's name repeated all and over again. It's like that, I remember that, and there was a couple of swear words in it, and that being the only real thing that was, I was uh, adult I, about I, I it. I thought the the blood from the um from the Bret That's Hart true. Match. Yeah, there's that, and yeah, he says shit a couple of times, doesn't he? 
it was and such I don't a... think there was no 12 certificate, was there? Ooh, I don't know. Don't know over here what it was. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there was because I think the first bat, 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 Batman '99 that was the first 12 certificate. Oh, would it, would it have been on? Yeah. Would the videos had a 12 certificate? Oh, I'm well? not sure about that, but I know Batman was the first 12. Yeah, over here. which Batman? Uh, the Michael uh, Keaton, Jack Nicholson one. Right, got you. The eight. Yeah, okay, got you. So I, I was going to say as well with the videotape being like, you know uncensored or whatever that was such a 90s gimmick to sell videotapes i remember like the simpsons too hot for tv (laughs) where they had like extra scenes where there was something like a bit untoward or like jerry springer Mm. censored i remember that being a big one back in the day as well like it just felt like i don't know hearing a swear word or seeing a pair of tits felt so much naughtier then (laughs) (laughs) Well, you've also got to remember that, like, TV was quite restrained for quite a long time. And, like, the kind of era of, of censorship, particularly on, on sort of network TV, was all over. The, was had It felt like it was being kind of restrained. Like, I, I'm trying to think, were banned films suddenly starting to become unbanned around that time? I think Res... Well, like Res- TV what? nasty. Uh, sorry, um, video nasties. And no, stuff. not like video nasties, but, like... Oh God! I'm trying to think of when Clockwork Orange. It was like kind of like the early 2000s, weren't it? Ah, right. When James Furman like left the BBFC and then some new guy took over, and he all of a sudden like did we release The Exorcist at the cinema? And I think that might have been sort of like my last sort of year in secondary school when they started doing all that stuff. But I also was only when Kubrick died actually when they put Clockwork Orange out. That was 2000, I think, because it was. It was Kubrick who banned banned it, wasn't it? Like, yeah, after those copycat distribution, yeah, uh, yeah. The copycat ones. Yeah, yeah. Because I, I, I remember my dad going to see it at the cinema when they re-released it, and that was like my first knowledge of what a Clockwork Orange was. And I remember just finding the title really weird because it just sounded like a chocolate orange, and I couldn't see what was <laughs> sinister about a Terry's chocolate orange. Amazing. Quite like a Terry's chocolate orange. I'm a big fan. And we all. I've just looked it up. By the way, the video was an 18, so there you go. Too hot for TV, because Stone Cold said so. 18? Yeah, but the, the UK cover... <laughs> Hardly is... a Serbian film, was it? <laughs> Jesus it's... Christ. Oh, I remember this now. I remember being really disappointed, because the UK version of the cover is just Steve Austin in basically his ringmaster gear. And it's yeah. not it's not the bloody face one that the Americans got. How disappointing is that? Devastating. It was a real shock seeing these WF tapes though when you go into Woolworths or whatever and, and them being eighteens like <laughs> the Shawn Michaels Undertaker, Ellen Isson. I was like, What? That's a WF video that's an eighteen. I mean you can see why Shawn Michaels is in a bloody bath of blood at the end of it but yeah just seeing it at the time and you're like wow that must be like the most you know intense match anybody's ever seen that's always quite hard though because i remember trying to buy various vhs's and not being allowed to buy them because the 18 certificate Mm -hmm. on them like that was frustrated i remember trying to buy the king of the ring 98 vhs because i I was desperate to see the hell in a cell match yeah and just couldn't couldn't purchase it in HMV because it was an 18. I remember my mate's brother having to get it and then having <laughs> to borrow it off him to finally get to see it after like it was it probably wasn't that long that I was waiting to see it, but it was like the match that I wanted to see more than any other match because I think it was uh, promoted loads in the build up to the Triple H Cactus Jack match, so it was kind of on my radar, sort of early doors when I started watching again. And it, yeah, 
It was bloody annoying being a 13-year-old wrestling fan and <laughs> there being 18s on the shelf, put it that way. <laughs> I'm trying to think, like, the, the only other one I can think of, and I think it made the... Because I've gone on record the saying it's the coolest video cover of all time is SummerSlam 88, and that's got... I think that's a 15, isn't it? Because of the yeah. uh, briefcase blood. But I think it adds an element of cool, though, as well, and it's another reason why, like, I'd love getting the ECW tapes from HMV and Virgin and that, because it was. It was a bit more adult, um, and it felt cool being a, a 17 year old trying to blag my way into buying an 18 video i'd struggled to get that wrestle war um 92 because that was a 15 oh yeah was yeah at that point in time yeah i managed to get away with it i could i could grow a bad mustache i was gonna say i could see you looking old for your age i reckon you could grow a beard when you're about 12 like you seem like i've got one now mate as we speak I still haven't, mate, and I'm 36 this year. Uh, but <laughs> I'll get there one day. Um, but I was going to say, like, on Raw itself, what will make a Raw? Like, it's a, you know, we've touched on, like, the, the the weird kind of culture clash that it is. I was I thought it was kind of differently set out as well. Like, there's a lot of, um, and I didn't remember this, a lot of backstage promos where, like, the wrestlers are backstage pretending they can hear Vince on commentary when yes. they clearly can't because yeah. the technology's not invented at that point. I think they're just talking to a cameraman. There was a lot of that though, wasn't it? It was like it felt like every five minutes we were going backstage to Paul Bearer or The Undertaker or the LOD or somebody just for like a few minutes worth of talking. It felt like a like a bit of a conscious change. There was also a lot of people sat around watching monitors. As well, mm. I know it's during this time period. As much as they do it now, that you know that everyone takes piss at them, stood at the side of the TV. But this one was like people literally sat around the monitor, you know, with their backs to the camera, watching like what was going on in the ring. Because I noticed they did a lot of that in the matches, like, oh look at blah blah backstage watching this match that's going on now. Mm. I found it hilarious when after Armour Johnson got taken out of that match because he picked up a legit injury before he, he obviously went off to the hospital they made him sit there for the rest of the show so they could film him with his back to the camera watching the back <laughs> clear pain like I just felt sorry for him it was like ah oh, poor bloke like getting his big push as a result of this got his injury can't go to the hospital yet wait here for the main event so we could film you with your back to the camera like was it that important no. This period could be labelled the fall of Ahmed Johnson, though, really, isn't it? <laughs> There's something Around, to that. There really is. I mean, but, like, it, it just, he's more muscle than human being. <laughs> like, him and Tuck, like, honestly, it's ridiculous, the, the absolute kind of state with him. But then again, is that not how we end up with The Rock, ultimately? Oh, that's true, yeah. If, if it's sliding down that... situation, maybe it doesn't yeah. end up, yeah. But then he was meant to have the match with Taker on the show, no? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, they, they say that the Vader's like the, the replacement for him. Yeah, it could have been a different history, couldn't it? I... Then... Yeah, I was banging sliding him. doors moments around oh. this time. Oh yeah, things could have turned out so different. Like he, maybe he could have been the the, uh, the Stone Cold. I was so it like, when he when he turned up in '96 as Shawn Mike as um the partner on Shawn Michaels' team on the uh, the wild card edition Survivor Series match. But I do remember loving when they mixed up the heels and the baby faces. I remember thinking like at the time he's the next big thing in wrestling because he was he was massive. He he was intense as anything. He was I didn't realise oh, yeah. at the time how sloppy he was and how much he was basically hurting everybody he was in the ring with, but he'd do like stupid dives and stuff. Like there was that there's that clip that was doing the rounds on Twitter this week of him mm, dressed yeah. like Sabu doing like suicide dives and flips to the outside <laughs> and landing on his head. Like, what an athlete. Like if, if you could have just maybe condensed some of it and directed some of it, like it was really sort of there with Ahmed Johnson. I fucking loved him. The bulk he was carrying, though, it never would have happened. 
Yeah. It just seems it was just crazy. It was, it was like he was inflatable. He was like the Michelin man. <laughs> <laughs> it was. It was insane. I was like, how his how his thighs weren't chapping against each other while he was walking, like those insanely big kind of world's strongest man contenders. Oh. It is use... funny when Cornets has to like do an Armour Johnson mm. promo and he just says great googly moogly because like some of his uh, <laughs> some of his promos are just like incomprehensible around this time period. Great for it though. That's oh. that's the appeal of a bit of Armour. Johnson, if you ask me, you never know what you're going to get. Unpredictable, yeah. The real I, I would... big tone, yeah. Oh, Tony He's Norris. Tea, I'm friends with him on Facebook, uh, Tony Norris. So, oh yeah. yeah, yeah. Me and Ahmed Johnson are still going strong. You know, we're connected. To? Um, what's he up to? Do you want me to yeah. find out? Yeah, yeah go, go on. on. Give us an update. Uh, well, let's have a look. I was going to say uh, while you're at it as well on the uh, on the episode image, I'm 100 in, including those photos from WF magazine where he's in the jean cut off shorts and nothing else. Oh yeah, it's my favourite photo shoot of all time. Oh yeah, <laughs> here we go. I'm on his profile. 23 minutes ago, he uh, posted a picture um, where it says Jesus doesn't have COVID 19. You can get <laughs> oh, close God. to him. Oh, okay, right. Yeah, so you know, loves a bit of religion. Uh, What's he looking like? Is he a big lad still? Because he was massive in WCW. Uh, don't look like there are any recent pictures from what I can see. Uh, let me have a little look through. Uh, that's not him. No way is that him. There's some really young, good-looking black fella uh, with a really good beard, well-groomed. Not him. I reckon it might be his daughter, possibly, that's with in that picture. You know what? I'm struggling for recent pictures. Let's have a look. Let's have a look. He's one of some them, good old ones here, though, of him in like fanny packs and all the rest of it. <laughs> <laughs> some good bodybuilder mates. Oh, fuck me. Oh, I found one from 2012, and you should see the size of his hands. They're like claws, seriously. <laughs> oh. um, he looks a bit like um, a cross between Ving Rames and Michael Clark Duncan. Put it that way. Okay. Yeah. It's just his hand I'm amazed by. Like, you could do some serious damage with these hands. I'll I tell you what, I'll send it over to you, Beto. Oh, please do. That's going in the images as well. <laughs> yeah. uh, oh, he was great. I love that he... I, I, I think as a kid, I remember, like, thinking, yeah, he's going to turn. He's joining the nation here. But that was a big part of these, like, these roars, wasn't it? The nation stuff. Mm. And the, I, lo- mm. I love the um, the nation angle where Farouk fires everybody. And that moment yeah. where uh, Clarence Mason's kind of laughing to himself. And he's like, D'Lo! Hold the ropes for Clarence. Like that's that sticks in my mind. It's like a, a moment when he lets uh, Delo stay in the nation. Clarence Mason was terrible. The whole like that was Vince trying to jump on a Johnny Cochran kind of mm. uh, Louis Louis Farrakhan. Yeah, very yeah. But th- that thing is though, like the original version of the nation, nation of Islam. They're called the nation, the nation, but they've got like PG thirteen in them, crushing them who couldn't be any whiter. Savio Vega for reasons like. This surely is like the way the nation should have always been. This reboot that the the kind of going through in these few weeks. But I enjoyed it as kind of a focal point of the telly. Like who's going to join? And then uh, it turns out to be uh, Ahmed Johnson and Kama Mustafa. Ah, uh, Ahmed looks fucking awesome in the nation. Though. I was loving his get up in all black. Like it was a match made in heaven. That like mm. I reckon he was pumped to get in there with the lads. He could wear his all black. Like, what I find weird about that as well is, like, you've got... I get what they're going for with that gimmick, um, but you've also got the the uh, group over on the other channel who are much cooler and wear much, like, cooler merchandise. Like, they haven't tried to merchandise a lot here. So, mm. like, a Nation of Domination t-shirt or, like, logo 
to me seems like an absolute no-brainer at this point mm-hmm. in time. But like you could just put NOD on a T-shirt, right? And surely do something with that. But it's sort of the lack of thought as to like how to further market them as a group or how to further make a profit or some income uh, as a promotion at this point in time that's kind of baffling, if mm. anything. But yeah, nation of domination at this point in time. I like the angle you mentioned there, Benno, but they get a lot better once The Rock comes along. Oh, 100%. Yeah, The Rock's a big improvement on your your camera Mustafa's of the world. That was another big thing that I did remember from the time. Mm. It stuck out then, and it stuck out now. Camera Mustafa, of all people, pinning The Undertaker. Basically clean. clean. Yeah, because Ahmed's outside, isn't he? Messing with the Nation of Domination. I suppose he turns after, but that felt like a... Taker doing a, a favor for his mate. I don't know if you guys noticed it, but rewatching it this oh, time, yeah. when he gets the pin, you see them have a couple of words with each other. It look, looks like he's saying thanks, and then it looks like the Undertaker's like hooked the leg, mate, and he hooks the leg. Like I feel like there's a bit of a like a, a respect thing there because at that even at that point, Undertaker wasn't taking losses like that to to Kama Mustafa of all people to what was basically a version of the Rock Bottom. It is weird all Undertaker's opponents around this time, though, isn't it? Because obviously he's got this whole storyline going on with Paul Bearer about, you know, you're a murderer and everything like that. But oh then it, 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 him being WF champion seems to be really on the back burner, doesn't it? There mm. seems to, there seems to be less focused on him being the champion. He seems to be getting thrown into, like, a load of random matches as champion while they're mainly focusing on, like, Austin, Brett, and Shawn Michaels. I forgot he was champion. I just assumed Brett was, and then it. I, for, I forgot that Vader Same. versus uh, Undertaker was a title match. I was like, oh shit, yeah, he was. Because then him and Brett face each other at SummerSlam, which is where there's yeah. the title change. Like, just completely forgot about it. It feels like quite a nothing title reign, and it was his first reign for what, like seven? No, was it ninety-one? He went. He beats Hogan, doesn't he? So six. Six years it was his first title rated but it just feels like such a non-event in many ways yeah i did the same thing it was it was the same for you joe when he walks out with the belt on the pay-per-view you kind of had that eureka moment because i don't even remember him having the belt on his person at any point on these rows unless i just missed it no he didn't he was too busy because obviously they're doing all that stuff with paul bearer calling him a murderer and everything <laughs> and then saying kane's still alive and then there's a really long promo i think it might be on the go home row where he's One talking time. about the charred remains and he's like acting like he's doing some kind of shakespeare monologue or something (laughs) it went on a bit that one didn't it yeah yeah Yeah. Uh, it sounds like you're not a fan of that impression no that's for you that jp come (laughs) it sounds like you were a fan of that stuff jp i loved that i love the undertaker cane stuff i just it's hokey and if you compare it directly to nitro that looks like Mm. at this time the coolest tv show like wrestling's ever had and then over on raw we've got some nonsense about a funeral parlor but i do actually think like the week to week and the wondering what the secret is and then you know it's like three months after this isn't it when kane finally shows up i can't i don't know i kind of got a kick out of all i liked it as like soap opera week to week tv but maybe it's just me I enjoyed it. I enjoy it now. Mm. I laugh at it now. I find like, I mean, like so much of this, you kind of find yourself sort of giggling at as if nothing else. But at the same time, I like at the time, I I can remember really disliking it. Like this was too much of a link to that cartoon past that kind of nearly driven me away really until the, the kind of excitement around ECW and then WCW kind of changing tack and the NWO and the rest of it has been the thing that kind of really reinvigorates you. And this is still that link to it. And it ties in with what we were saying earlier on 
about Vince throwing all the, the shit at the wall and seeing what sticks. This is the kind of program he wants to be booking. Like, mm. really, this whole thing. And it's amazing that the end, the way they actually have Kane come in in the hell and the cell and everything else is so fucking good. I'm being so amazed that it was good because I think at the time watching it, I was like, ah, oh, I can't be doing this shite. It's, is it eyes? I knew it was going to be eyes at Yankum. So it was like, oh, fuck me. This is going to be terrible. But the way they did it, and obviously Sean plays his part bumping like a motherfucker that mm. night, it's absolutely great. So, yeah, but then after that, it's it's kind of more serious taker, isn't it, then, for a bit afterwards? Well, this is the first year that he actually really got to wrestle, isn't it? Because yeah. you think, like, Undertaker, when he comes in, sort of, for how, for how many years? Six, seven years? Does kind of nothing matches against nothing kind of big opponents that are there for him to look like a monster against. He, he had bad feuds. Like, can you think of a good Undertaker feud before 1996 and the Mick Foley feud? I was say, really only thought. Foley. Yeah, Foley's the one. Yeah. I think Foley's the turning yeah. point where he kind of humanizes him a bit, doesn't he? And that kind of changes it. Yeah, and it's almost like suddenly he's allowed to wrestle, and you realize actually he's quite a good wrestler, isn't he? The Undertaker. <laughs> and like there's stuff he was showing in that Vader match, which we'll talk about later, where I was like, I bet he hadn't got to show any of that stuff in like six years. It was like he was doing stuff from his mean Mark Callus kind of like uh, <laughs> mm. Arsenal with any kind of points in that match. But yeah. It's uh, uh, you sort of think it's a, re- a year of release for the Undertaker as well, that '97. But it's interesting talking about that feud because you know you, everyone who's a regular listener to this podcast knows what my thoughts are on like supernatural uh, sort of wrestling and going down this sort of path with wrestling stuff. It's not for me at all, but I sort of get why this works. And what you can sort of say is, at this point in time, it feels like there's a lot more focus. And it feels like the promotion have got some like long-term kind of storylines and angles that they want to execute. And it's around, like, going through these roars. It's at this point where you go, ah, okay, I can see where the focus was for the next few months and how well they were plotting stuff gradually, but also being patient as well. So you think you've got the Brett stuff, you've got the Hart Foundation stuff, you've got the stuff with Mick Foley as well, the Mick Foley Triple H feud goes on for a good few months after this point. You've got the rise of Austin and the consistent way they booked that as well. Austin so, Michaels, they were going to obviously yeah. do as well. Yeah. So it's a, to me, it's amazing how much focus there actually was on plotting stuff out and kind of booking it long term at this point in time. Because you compare that to say now mm. when it feels like, you know, fly by night you know rubbish booking that changes week to week and it's completely inconsistent you never get anything decent out of it and it's like yeah this is actually quite good even though i'm not into the storyline because it's good to see them actually maintain a focus with this mm. it's, it's it is of- wild though isn't it how everyone's like feuding with everyone because you've got mm. you know you've got uh, mick foley feuding with triple h but then he's also trying to become austin's tag team partner then you've got austin feuding with the heart foundation well, then he's also got this um, uneasy alliance with Shawn Michaels. So Shawn Michaels is involved with Austin and then all the Bret Hart stuff as well. So it is mm. weird how everything's interconnected, but everyone seems to be feuding with everybody else. Yeah, it makes things a bit more interesting, doesn't it? And it adds to that like chaotic feel of the shows. Like I was going to say, like to, to both your points, that it does. The kind of my my theory on like Vince Russo's like influence on wrestling is in this '97 period, you can you can feel. He's got an influence over Vince, like we said earlier, and maybe some of the tone of the promotion 
but he's not booking the week to week. And we're not quite at car crash levels yet, are we yet? And you know, I've got, whether it's Cornette or Pritchard, whoever else is backstage, kind of threading, you know, the the characters maybe a Russo once, you know, a Stone Cold is a babyface for one, you know, we haven't talked much about him yet, or like, you know, Bret Hart is a heel, or just generally the edgier kind of shootier feel to it. But like with a with a competent booking team where, yeah, things are laid out and there are intricate stories going on and the patient with Kane, like we said, you don't actually see him un- until October. It feels like the best of, of those different worlds, really, like the best you're going to get in Vince Russo WF because it obviously goes as much as like 98, 99 of their most successful years. Like the you try watching those back now, if we ever get to them on one of these retro shows, they are, they're tough to watch back. Whereas these, while we can point out like some of the, the failings of it, it's still a well-booked week-to-week wrestling show, isn't it? And it's at its core and it's still you know an easy enough watch well everyone's been forced to raise their game haven't they mm. and they're having to really like more than any this is this the first time that vince kind of really has to listen to the audience mm, true and seeing what sticks like rather than it, it, this is his plan this is where he kind of has to go with what audience tastes are and that ends up promoting thing but yeah like i say before i all I could think about is what if this hadn't happened, if these little kind of snippets happened and then the ripple effects, the butterfly effect of all of that. And it kind of says how tenuous everything is at that point. You use the word chaotic. That's the thing about the Monday Night Wars. They're just absolute chaos, aren't they? Mm-hmm. And people are responding minute to minute to stuff as well that's going on on the other side. Mm-hmm. Do you not think Vince was trying to sort of hold on to some of, some of the kind of Vince-isms here as well, though? Because like, yep. you oh, still yeah. got like gimmicks that the only per like say let's say for they're example, all dying on their ass though aren't they yeah. yeah but like you've got say rockabilly and you hear vince with <laughs> rockabilly <laughs> and vince is the most excited person in the entire building yeah uh over these guys while he's on commentary and you're like vince you're not responding to how like people at home are thinking about this gimmick i mean you got a, a rest of their like say two cold scorpio who's doing, say, Flash Funk. Like, you know, when you hear about those meetings with Vince from this sort of period, like Foley and Austin, where they come up with these bizarre gimmicks and they give him this kind of, like, pamphlet of, like, what was Austin's, like, Chili McFreeze was one. Yeah. Yeah. And you're like, "Uh, okay, a few of these crap Vince gimmicks got through. And based on how he commentates on the gimmick, you can tell that it's his idea in many ways that he is kind of wanting to get over so it feels like you've just got all of these forces kind of uh, for lack of a better term wrestling with one another and you think about say flash funk when he actually gets to wrestle so like for me the best match that i saw in any of the roars was the flash funk sabu match because mm, it was yeah. like too cold scorpio was actually allowed to be too cold scorpio and show why he was such an innovative and great wrestler in the u.s at that point in time because it felt different and fresh to this kind of like kind of quite dull quite boring kind of house style that wwe employed and kind of still does employ to some extent but more so at that point in time where it feels like it's a lot of kick punch finisher win sort of stuff and it was like oh this is different wrestling can be different 
Hmm. Oh, that was, that was I also won't give him too much credit for the Kane stuff as well, because I don't know if you guys have been reading the observers around this time, but like they were on about bringing Papa Shango back to being oh, served yeah, to so... that Kane thing. Yeah. Oh wow. my god, imagine that. <laughs> You'd have Charles Wright dodged a fucking bullet over that one, didn't he? Because oh, he did yeah. quite well out of the Godfather in the end. You, you can imagine, remember when he did that PCW show where he came out as the Godfather for one match and Papa Shango for another? Mm. You could have a third turn there as Kane, you know, could have been money in that. <laughs> <laughs> for all Charles Wright. Uh, Classic gonna... flutter. <laughs> I was going to say, yeah, that Sabu 2 Gold Scorpio match was probably my highlight, especially Sabu trying to break that table and refusing to, to keep trying. Like, he does like a, it's like a moonsault and it doesn't break and then yep. he just does a standard splash and it doesn't it's break. It's just such a shit splash. <laughs> oh, and then you can tell two Gold Scorpio, sorry, Flash Funk has a word, it's like, just try to have another go and he goes back up top and it's like a leg drop and it kind of breaks but doesn't really. I love that. I love that he was allowed to do that on a row. Like, imagine, imagine, like on a row. Now they're bringing in someone like that, like someone like it, it's the equivalent to bringing like someone from GCW or something. You know, like <laughs> Nick Gage isn't going to turn up on Raw next week. It's not happening, lads. It's uh, kind of says a lot about the the area. Isn't it bizarre though? Hearing Vince McMahon in 1997 commentate yeah. a Sabu match, <laughs> like it just it's like what this happened. Like you sort of. Like I hadn't seen these roars before. I'd seen some of the segments, like the Heart Foundation stuff. I'd seen the Austin stuff I'd seen before. But I had no idea that match happened. And it was like, I kept having to remind myself of kind of what was going on. Because you've got these two, like, warring worlds of, like, Vince McMahon and Jerry Lawler as this traditionalist on commentary. And then you've got these two guys being as innovative as you can possibly be. Kind of, let's be honest, having an influence and an impact on the next generation of both mainstream wrestling and independent wrestling at the same time. Mm. Yeah, it's weird. And it, I think it's, it's it's just weird listening to Vince on commentary in general. What he's doing is like, what he in his head imagines a commentator sounds like, where he's kind of talking like this. It's like so yeah. odd. Yeah. <laughs> so what's the voice he's doing? What is it? What's he trying to do? It's so weird. It, it is so weird. I often wonder though, like, was it the fact that he just wanted to be out there? to see what was going on firsthand and being like, he didn't want any kind of filter for his message True. at that stage. And it's about sort of the control and basically kind of Montreal makes him change all that, doesn't it? Well, I think with that as well, like his commentary is so out of place as we've sort of discussed briefly and it just feels like it's from a bygone era. So like I was thinking like the commentary desk here compared to say the WCW commentary desk, like, okay, Heenan, I don't think he's great at that point in time, but, Tanae's great, Shivani's great, and there's a chemistry and there's a buzz in that w, on that WCW commentary desk a lot of the time. Whereas, say, here, it just feels like Vince and JR kind of don't work together very well. Like, it feels like they don't really play off one another. It just feels kind of, again, dated and like it's stuck in a different time period. And it feels like Vince is kind of doing an extension of what he did in the early 90s here in a much edgier, cool era. So I remember when I first started watching the pay-per-views from this sort of generation, and I had no idea, really, that Vince was commentating at this point. So I found it really odd hearing him on commentary. And I think it's Survivor Series 97, the first pay-per-view from that era where Vince doesn't commentate. And I remember it just being so much so much more refreshing without him on commentary. And it's almost like that kind of needed to happen for him to stop carrying out the role because he suddenly finds himself and finds something completely 
different because yeah i think someone should have had a word in his ear much earlier and said oi get your ass off here but to that point i gotta say i i've never really been a fan of jerry the king lawler as a commentator since about what 2001 mm. since he came back and replaced Heyman. uh was that 2001 or two i can't remember off the top of my head but here i was sort of not I can't say that I was loving him, but I've realised actually he did add something to commentary during that kind of late 90s, like uh, very early 2000s period. And I often forget that because he's been bad really for about 20 years at this point. Yeah, no, I think that's fair. He kind of fit the, I don't know, the era. Like he kind of, you know, we can we can shake our head and roll our eyes at like some of the some of the lines he comes out with and, you know, the puppy stuff and all that, but he does kind of fit the... He fit the, he fit the early 90s and, like, his kind of sideshow making, you know, mid-90s making wisecracks and stuff on commentary, but he kind of fits this... He feels maybe the way it is and it feels wrong said about Jerry Law, especially considering how old would he have been there, like 45 or something. He comes across as cool compared to the others, like, or at least cooler and a bit more... With the times, then maybe well, a lot more than Vince. Um, I'm, yeah, probably more than JR as well. But I don't know. Again, that speaks to like Vince's ego, doesn't it? Like you said, like the fact that Vince is on commentary at this point, and Jim Ross is sat right there. Like Ross and Lawler was always the call, wasn't it? Like why would why would you be doing anything differently? Um, but yeah, I do think I do think you're right. I think there's definitely the there's definitely a quality to Lawler at this point that is like clearly gone by now um i wonder whether that's the reason he's still on rose now is vince just remembers that era and vince just doesn't realize that this was 20 what three years ago 24 years ago when lola was actually good uh and kind of that's another reason why he's he's still using him now i'm always a great cons- example what you were saying joe of vince though is the star of this canadian stampede uh, pay-per-view where he says something about like oh we've got a great japanese match for you haven't we jr because he clearly knows fuck all about what <laughs> this who these people oh, are why yeah. they're on the show what the match is going to be about so he's like yeah uh, yeah jr tell us about this japanese match <laughs> yeah it's, it's as soon a- as the word light is mentioned he's switching off fuck that's mm-hmm. what, anything to do with that that's heavy. jr now that's weird, isn't it? That's what JR's become. Yeah. No, JR's the guy who's like, so Excalibur, tell me who these wrestlers even are. Like, yeah. <laughs> it's kind of, we've come full circle. Did uh, you hear what King said about Taka Michinoku? I remember him saying something. What was it? Uh, it was on the mat. It was the night after, actually, on the Raw, where oh. they do the rematch of uh, Sazuki. Is that right, Ben? Rick Sasuke. Versus Taka. And he says something like, Taco, he's Japanese. You're like, oh, okay, that kind of uh, works with that uh, Akira Tozawa take in the last few weeks as well, doesn't it, if anything? Did you hear him with the Putski stuff? Oh, the Polish jokes. Uh, the Polish jokes. Jesus Christ. <laughs> then there's the stuff with Goldust as well, where he like outright says calls him oh, a fag yeah. and then the audience was like cheering for him. And then I think there's a Goldust promo where he's like, Are you queer? And the audience is like booing Goldust and it's like, Oh god, this is terrible. Yeah, that, that was the big Goldust babyface term, wasn't it? When Lawler was like pushing him on whether he was gay, and then Goldust just says no and gets the biggest pop. It's like, oh god, that's just hot. that's ninety six. That's before all this Saturday era stuff. Yeah. Um, he also there was another point in the Sasuke Taka match where King refers to the couple of Japs in the ring right oh, now. Oh my oh, god, that yeah, doesn't sound great. Uh, is he out there for all those sable and sunny bits? I don't think he is, is he? No, because he sort of comes out and does guest commentary. Yeah, so that's right. 
the next night on Raw in the light heavyweight rematch, Brian Christopher comes out and does guest commentary, and King's on there for the entire night, and him and Christopher are just playing off one another, and Christopher's pissing himself at his dad's <laughs> jokes. It's like yeah. he's trying to get his dad's good books or something. Yeah. It's funny when Christopher debuts, because like Vince is going on about, like, oh, you trained this guy, didn't you? And then he's like, oh, and I've also heard he's your son, and Wallace is <laughs> like... Wallace well, just like, why don't you just mind your own business? Like, you know, everyone should just mind their own business. And he just seems really nervous to admit that he's got this son who's, who's you know, 20 odd or whatever. Doesn't want to admit he's old because he's <laughs> <Yeah>. a pervert. <laughs> that Heyman makes that joke, doesn't he, when he's on commentary? He says, so it was like proper, proper with a gun over your head, but he said something like, oh, um, Brian Christopher's Jerry's uh, son. I bet you his mum's about 35. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's actually a really good line. <laughs> Him and Heyman clearly don't like each other. Mm. And even in recent years, when they've worked together, you can tell that there's like a weird tension there. I also remember a podcast a few years ago where it was a Jericho podcast of Heyman on. I reckon it was around 2013-14. I think it was Jericho, Heyman and Edge do a random podcast in a hotel room. And Heyman dropped some bombs about Lawler then that are absolutely hilarious. Um and you're just like, right, there's proper like long-term tension there that's come from somewhere. And you think back with the co- like Heyman replacing King on commentary as well, and then King replacing Heyman. Like, it just feels like they've never gotten on at any but, point in time. Would that be because they started up a feud between USWA and ECW, didn't they? The feud we all wanted to see, mate. <laughs> a desperate for it, exactly. Um, but yeah, they, yeah, they'd started that up. So I imagine, and that seemed to fizzle out pretty quickly i imagine hardcore heaven was pretty much where all of that that ends but yeah i all went fucking south with them two didn't it oh it's a shame really yeah is um sid who was our injured softball sid around this season i mean all the injuries he fucking had around this time like bad back car crash with flash flash funk and flash funk was on tv around the same time but Sid has to have another couple of weeks off because he can he'll come back into Raw and then he'll disappear phrases and then you um, read all these uh, wrestling observers and he was just like he just like um, calling sick at like the drop of a hat it was like definitely the worst Sid's been for like calling in sick for uh, injuries and then coming and refusing to put over Mick Foley and things like that and it's it's funny that we've not even fetched him up uh, just yet because of the amount of time he was having off injured during this whole time period mm. yeah you kind of think in 1987 as being a, a big Sid period because he he's in the Mania main event isn't he with Undertaker that yeah. was 13. he's the one who lost the belt what a Mania main event that is Undertaker I, I never understood why that was uh, I remember as yeah. well like I was saying getting the tapes around this time borrowing off that mate of mine I remember just seeing that and being like, what the fuck is this match? Like, and then just thinking Sid was utter shit. Like, I've, I don't think I've ever seen a good Sid match outside of those Shawn Michaels matches, to be honest with you. Uh, but yeah, that main event of WrestleMania, is that the worst WrestleMania main event of all time? I'm trying to think of one, uh, others that you would mm. put up there with it. Roman Reigns Triple H, I think is pretty awful. Yeah. Any, anything else come to mind? Oh, not really. I think it's that, you know, like, especially now as know. well. Like, like, you know, would you go back and watch Hogan Bundy, for example? Like, yeah, that's that true. Holding up and 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 stuff around like, oh god, yeah. Just trying to think back to the other ones. Yeah. Uh, Hogan here is probably the best comparison, isn't it? But we'll pass that. Yeah. Like, we, we've had our Sean and Brett work rate eras, haven't we? Like to go back to to 
big lads doing choke slams in a main event of a main, especially up against the competition they were going against at the time as well. Like that's another. Like you, I'm sure the people around Vince were kind of pushing him in other directions, and he was insistent on going with the two big lads because that's what is what he does, isn't it? He? he always goes goes back to the mm. big lads in a in a time of when crisis. Out. Yeah, it's always worth it. Isn't it? Um, I was going to say, I mean, before we get into the pay per view, any any other thoughts on like the TVs in this period? Uh, if I can lower the tone, were you? Uh, and I apologise to any women listening, but we. Uh, were you Sonny or Sable guys at the time? I was at a, I was I was I was very uh, I was still committed to my, my, my Sonny years at this point, but I think Sable was starting to take her over as the number one in the company. Uh, I don't know if I'm yeah, it was to definitely that. Sonny, Sonny. <laughs> but it, it's funny because like in all the interviews, she's like saying, "Oh, well, around this time period, I wanted to be the wholesome girl next door." But on all these adverts she's doing, you know, they're doing close-ups of her shoving money down the top and then all running around with soup soaks and that, and it's just like, <laughs> "No, you were never that wholesome girl next door when you were running around doing all this." Like shit she's delusional. Let's yeah. be honest here. <laughs> yeah, like this is the the least wholesome I think she was in a run. To be honest, she's got a there's a real like twinge to her that I could imagine you enjoying JP there's a uh, no. there's a dirty Tuesdays factor to uh, to Sonny at this like no. seven period no more of a Sable guy more of no, a Bueller no. guy no, no definitely Sonny oh, okay. over, over you're more of a Medusa man aren't you JP <laughs> well that's it Any... <laughs> Marlena <laughs> maybe trail any other way um, but yeah watching them back with these it would just be like I'd just be finding myself laughing at Vince's reaction because all of a sudden he'd just go Sonny Sonny's here and he just seemed like really excited about it and then but he wouldn't say anything else because we hadn't got the sort of lawler pervert stuff going on at that point in time have we do you know the thing that I find makes Sable funnier with Vince at this time right is that entrance music you know the like the start of that entrance music yeah. Like, yeah and then Vince's reaction to that always makes it sound so perverted and <laughs> yeah yeah <perverted. laughs> Have you seen? Did you see that where she came out just to shill um, some kind of like blow up King of the Ring chair? And Vince almost has a fucking orgasm when she comes out. He's like, "Wow, yeah, look at Sable selling this chair," and it's like, "Oh my god!" Yeah, he he's very much like at that point in time. You're thinking, I was thinking, yeah, this is Russo. I'm wondering what Cornette's making of this bit, and Russo just going, "You push them at their hot, push them out there, <laughs> do it." Doing whatever. I just have him walk around the ring. Does it make any difference? Have her introduce Brian, uh, Brian Christopher. Into, have Sonny introduce Brian Christopher. Why not? Shits and giggles. <laughs> there's, there's definitely a point on like one of these rows around this period where I remember watching it on Sky at the time. And like Sonny must have such a low-cut top on introducing one of these matches that there's like a WWF logo across the screen for the entire segment. <laughs> I remember as a kid, like, Sky must have just been like, nope. Not showing that at five o'clock on a Friday or whatever time it was. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Any other highlights from Sean? starts appearing around that time period as well, doesn't he? I don't know if you guys managed to catch the, uh, you know, the infamous Sunny Days uh, promo that he does when Brett. I, I was reading Brett's book back, and he says that you know the comment originally went over his head because he couldn't hear, hear him over the crowd, sort of thing. And then you look at Sean backstage doing this promo, and his eyes are like completely dilated and he looks completely off his tree and then i noticed in a load of the promos around here sean's just like seemingly out of it for a lot of the backstage stuff well do you know what i started watching um after this i start uh, after i finished watching i started watching a bit of wrestling with shadows and i didn't watch all of it but the first half there's the bits with sunny and bret hart and he's clear they're just all over each other like mm. flirting away i was like 
No way were they not having an affair at that point in time. Absolutely impossible. I think this is like, and this might have been around sort of the Canadian stampede time that they filmed those bits as well. But yeah, clearly that being the case. I think the other thing with this era as well, though, before we get onto the pay per view, mm. like in terms of like last thoughts on the Raws, when I started watching these, I was like, right, this is not Nitro. And I think it's partly the presentation of it because of the sort of hokiness, the weird transition it's in. The fact you've got like the cool looking kind of like raw graphics, but then you've got the block logo still. You've got the weird in your house branding going on still. Weird match graphics. Mm. And when it got going and you're getting like the Godwins, I was thinking if I was a teenager in 1997, I'd be flicking this over and I'd be all over Nitro. Like, give, if you gave me a choice between WWF, even though WWF was really improving at this point in time, or WCW, I'd have been all over Nitro. Like, I'd have been an NWO man through and through at this point in time. Like, I just think compared to say an appearance by um what's his name is it larry hearns the detroit boxer uh thomas hearns Hitman thomas hearns, hearns. Yeah. yeah and then dennis rodman at this point in time like yeah yeah it felt like wcw was so much kind of like on the pulse of the kind of cultural zeitgeist you know if you go from dennis rodman to roddy piper dropping uh film titles such as con air and uh, Batman and Robin into his uh, promos and all the rest of it. Like, it just felt like WCW in terms of merchandising, in terms of entrance music, kind of had it going on. Like, some of the entrance music on this, like, I love Owen Hart's theme, but my God, it feels kind of like 80s at this point in time. It doesn't feel cool. Like, to me, a lot of the WWF stuff at this time feels like a kind the equivalent of, like, an 80s hair metal band when they sort of had that hangover period in the 90s. It's like watching Motley Crue try and adapt, whereas it feels like WCW are completely in touch, like a a great band of the era, like, I don't know, a Pantera or a Pearl Jam or someone. Yeah, I just found that kind of comparison fascinating, and I think it's an absolutely no-brainer, which would I'd have been watching on a Monday night. I don't know, mate. Austin's theme tune was like, I'll never get sick of hearing that. Oh, no, I'm with you on that one. But a lot of the theme tunes, think about some of the bad theme tunes from this era that feel like they're from a different era. Rockabilly's theme tune. Mm. Uh, Triple H's ridiculous music, which I'm pretty sure is the music for the BBC's Euro 96 package as well. (laughs) As heard on Um, BWE. British Bulldogs still coming out to... Is that Rule Britannia or some patriotic bollocks he's coming out to? Like It's little things like that that people are still coming out to at this point in time that make me think, yeah, like they weren't fully on board with sort of like the current era at this point. There was a little bit of laziness that still existed around the presentation. Mm. I've just realised you mentioning Davy Boy Smith Jr.'s music. I was pl- I was watching some of the, the Raw this morning. And obviously when he comes out, I wonder if the neighbours thought, oh, he's getting into VE day, <laughs> isn't he? Getting it early. A <laughs> couple, couple of British Bulldog matches. <laughs> you open your window up and like turn the TV up to like 50 or whatever and then they really would have known that you were being patriotic screaming out that he Brett didn't carry him at SummerSlam 92 he did just as much work <laughs> I don't know I believe <laughs> I know like anytime he's in the ring with Brett you can tell he's just looking to Brett for instruction at any given moment he's just he's just oh, following yeah. instructions I reckon Davey at that point he knows. he's not the only one though is he really? that's true that's true <laughs> 
Uh, Something is funny about the timing of watching all this stuff, especially with that Doctor D episode of um, Dark Side of the Ring being on the other week, is this whole Vader held hostage in Kuwait day nine. I don't know if you've like, when the last time you watched it, but obviously he goes up to, he goes on Kuwait TV and then gets in that guy's face for saying, asking him yeah. if wrestling's fake. But it's just so funny how they're following it. Poor old Vader's like stuck in Kuwait under like hotel arrest or whatever. And they're just seemingly taking the piss out of him on, on TV. I think Lawler even gets an action figure that he's like put bars over the sort of like plastic bit at the front and he's going oh this is probably what vader looks like now and it's like oh guys fucking stuck in kuwait and like they're just constantly taking the piss out of him on tv <laughs> amazing uh it, it, it's a great period to kind of go back and watch and yeah see all that stuff because it is just a it's a real it's 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 a it's a different the wild time. west it's the wild west yeah you put it best there jp that's definitely what it is uh, shall we get into the, the pay-per-view itself then shall we uh mm. shall we talk yeah i've got plenty to say on like austin and the hearts and all that but maybe we'll save that for the uh, the main event review or really we can talk about it with the pay-per-view because it is the basically the heart tone coming isn't it like I, i'd forgotten like the when canadian stampede kicks off like when they show the show and all the videos of the actual calgary stampede and like it, it, it's like, it's yeah. a real thing, isn't it? That happens, like they have like a seems to have like floats and stuff. And there was a WWF float, and it sounds like Vince doing the voiceover is trying to take credit for for like, it being like a WWF parade. But I'm pretty sure there's just they just happened to be there at the same time and and gave it the same name. But they still come across as absolute heroes, don't they? At this point, like the uh, the hearts are just in in Canada in general, especially Brett. Like Brett is just like a, another level of superstar. They love talking about how there were mile-long lines for Bret Hart. Did you? Uh, <laughs> yeah. That one was said a, a several times, wasn't it, during this? Yeah, they always throw that out. I think it was the same in Europe as well, wasn't it? Like, he was always, like, a, a massive draw over here. Uh, but, yeah, I loved all that stuff. I loved those videos. I mean, the, the, to be honest, the main thing I loved about this show was how easy to watch it was. Like, it's, what, an hour and 50? Like, it's, yep. <laughs> it's, not, it's, it's not even two hours. Like, it is such, such an easy watch, but there should be, like, more pay-per-views like that uh, these days, I would say. Like, a easy, how many matches have we got? Like, five? <laughs> and then we've got, we got our big, on our big main event that takes up most of the show. Um, I'm guessing nobody bothered watching the, uh, the free-for-all match with the, uh, with the new Blackjacks. Uh, I'm guessing. I saw a couple of grapple ratings for that, but none from you guys. Is that on the uh, network to watch? I didn't know it was on there. No, I don't know. Wait, where would you even go to watch these free-for-alls? Mate, I've got no interest watch in watching the new Blackjacks. <laughs> you, know, <laughs> you know, in terms of a, a, another gimmick with silly, outdated music and an idea that was completely outdated and oh, made mate. them look ridiculous when you've got the coolest TV show on TNT on the other side, the new Blackjacks well and truly summed up for me and when i saw bradshaw had taken place in a bull rope competition or something at the camp the canadian stampede it was like oh no fucking surprise there of course i'm sure he was the first person to stand up for it and i'm sure he made it an america versus canada affair as well or something didn't he sorry wasn't it calgary firemen and the uh WDF superstars because it's doc hendrix who does all these voiceovers because i was listening to a the Pritchard podcast talking about this uh, show and he was con- he just rips the piss out of Michael A's doing these voiceovers because he's like he just sounds like some kind of 80s FM DJ and here are the firemen of Calgary and the WF superstars and it's just Doc Hendricks is all over the show oh. doing these terrible voiceovers for like because they keep going to these packages over and over don't they mm, mm. making out apparently the ad it does go back years the hearts of an air float of this Calgary stampede you know, like um, the Stampede Wrestling 
um, shows yeah. and they'd have a float at this thing every year. But yeah, it's funny hearing Pritchard like constantly rip the piss out of Michael Hayes for all these voiceovers on this show. He's all over the WFTV at Go on, say it again. He's all over the WFTV at this point. That's all. Like I remember, like how you know to your uncool point, Joe. Like even in 1996, like the, I remember buying like a sh- one of the Shawn Michaels videos. And like thinking it was going to be like this really, I thought Shawn Michaels was really cool in 1996. Maybe with hindsight, he wasn't that cool. But like Doc Hendricks presents the video and he's head to toe in Shawn Michaels gear. He's got like a heart filled t-shirt. He's got the Shawn Michaels biker hat on. And he is such an uncool man. It is ridiculous. And the biggest thing I was going to mention there before you go, Joe, is like Doc Hendricks at this time. Anyone, anyone that has a guess how old he is in 1997? Oh, he's like 40, maybe even younger than that. He might be in his late 30s. Yeah, 38 years. Yeah, because I just find it amazing how early Hayes retired. But that's the thing. I always find it so odd when you watch these back and you see Doc Hendricks. And you think, this guy was like one of the best heat getters in the world at one point. And you're using him in this shit role as a backstage interviewer that he's not very good at. Why were they not using him as a manager at this point in time? Like, surely he would have been getting more heat on heels than Clarence Mason was getting. You know, it just seems like a complete misuse of someone who was genuinely kind of great at doing character stuff and getting over and getting other guys over. It also makes you wonder how fucking hardcore that party scene in World Class was. That that's what it does to you before you're 40 in the wrestling business. <laughs> and you're just like, fuck it. I am. I can't wrestle anymore. I am done. Christ. Keeping up with Gino Hernandez and the Von Erics. <laughs> well, the one thing I would say, though, Joe, is when they did Gordy. make him a manager. When they did make him a manager, he was literally... Remember, he managed the Hardy Boys and he'd dress up like them. And he looked like the, oh, the, yeah. least, <laughs> the least cool uncle of all. Despite the fact he was probably only about not even 40 at that point still. Like, he couldn't have been less cool, could he? He, was pro- he really dragged those lads down until they, uh, they switched up to Lisa. It was the wrong choice, the wrong choice. But imagine him managing like a heel you're trying to get over. Mm. I think he would have done a job, had a better job than, say, Clarence Mason, like I said. Yeah, better better than the whole Doc Doc Hendricks uh, spiel. But yeah, speaking of him, like you mentioned, Martin, he does the uh, the promo video for uh, the opener match of Triple H and Mankind. Uh, Never good when an opener match is a double count out, but overall I enjoyed it. Uh, I thought it was weird that like Mankind's in this match and not in the main event, considering a lot of the focus of the Raws leading up was him, you know, the whole pick me Steve stuff and he's trying to be Steve Austin's partner. I would have thought he'd maybe be a a choice above gold dust now for that main event. Uh, I suppose they're saving it for the for the tag stuff in the Raws following, but I thought that was a bit odd. But overall, I uh, I enjoyed the match. Uh, I I gave it three on grapple. I thought it was a gentleman's three. Maybe loses a little bit for uh, for the finish, but overall uh, a fun match. Uh, how about you, Martin? Where, where were you on this one, and what did you uh, think of this as uh, as as mankind's role on the show? Yeah, I completely agree with that. Because he makes the save uh, for Austin, doesn't he, on the go-home roll for this show. So it is weird that he's not, like, in tag match. But I suppose he did have this feud going on with Triple H. But, yeah, it was an enjoyable brawl for the time. Obviously, we've seen a lot more hard-hitting stuff these days. And, um, you know, it just goes to show that even going back as far as this, you know, Foley was doing his best to get Triple H over. Because um, I think it was the month before they'd had um, the King of the Ring final. And even though Triple H won, you know, it's all about Foley taking, like, the cringe-inducing bumps and things that he obviously became really famous for. Mm. Yeah, it's like he's trying to get Triple H over, but he just gets himself over and puts mm. more sympathy and 
a sort of likability on himself at the same time. Like I've I've always really liked this match. It was a really fun brawl, if anything. Um, I like that they carry on as an angle throughout the show as well. Like with Foley being in this match, I thought it was possibly because the undercard was so thin. True. That taking him out and putting him against Triple H rather than say Gold Dust made the card that little bit more attractive especially coming off the King of the Ring and they kind of go like Triple H and uh, Foley have quite a few matches in 97 don't they like they've got that they've got the SummerSlam cage match um, they've Jack got one. that match Say it again. The Cactus Jack one with the uh, the power driver yeah, on the stage. Square Garden. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a really yeah. good match. I and mean, they've got the one at one night only as well, um, which is quite a fun match. So it felt like a feud that kind of went on long term. And like watching this, I thought there were two things that came to mind. First of all, I think Foley was Triple H's best opponent ever. Yes. Mm-hmm. I don't think Triple H ever had chemistry anywhere near this good with anyone else. And their matches got better over time as Triple H grew as a wrestler. Uh, but also, man, Foley on these roars as well, he's got something to prove. Like his level of effort and how committed he was at this point in time. I think we often forget about how good he was this year. Like he might be the most underrated wrestler in 97, if you ask me. Like him and Austin, if anyone on that roster at this point, their motivation was second to none. The level of effort, going the extra lane, getting everything they touch over as well. Little things like Foley's body movements, the way he's looking to get something over, the way he's looking to connect with a crowd at different points of a slight movement or a slight inflection, like com- absolutely commendable. Like I, f- I think Foley, we kind of forget about how good he was because of him sort of doing constant comebacks and doing the horrible TNA run. But yeah, watching these the last few weeks has kind of, I don't know, reinvigorated my love and appreciation of what a great wrestler Mick Foley was. Mm. Yeah, he's massive for Triple H's career, isn't he? Like he is, he, he's the most important element to, to getting Triple H over like in this year and then getting him over when, you know, they, they do that main event running in 2000 as well. Uh, yeah, definitely say he's, he's, Triple H's best opponent. Uh, what do you give it, JP? Do you give a, you a gentleman's three or a? Oh yeah, gentleman's three. I thought it was considering it was building up, up obviously to the blow-off match at um, the cage match at SummerSlam '97. Um, I thought it was a good build-up to it. Mm. Um, that spot where he, thro- he he whips him into China, who does that kind of sloppy power slam, and he hits his leg on that. And and oh, then yeah. it kind of comes back to me then thinking about how much how much Foley was throwing himself into it, like Joe just said a moment ago. Mm. Um, and also, I thought Hunter's good because he's carrying less weight. This True. was kind of his natural body shape, and probably if he hadn't done anything about it, he wouldn't have even been thought of as as being able to be the top guy. But this certainly would have been, you know, sorry to mention sliding doors moments again. Imagine if he'd stayed around this size. Like, mm. would he would he have developed even more? Probably not. There you go. Yeah, three stars. I think at this point, like, we, you know, again, yeah, the sliding doors thing, it, there's every chance if he'd have stayed that small. And, you know, the, the like we said, the, the main event run hadn't turned out as, or, or they, they, you know, as they were saying, and like during this period, I think, 
you know, we've said before in the in the dirt in the dirt sheets in the observer in the torch, there was lots of talk about you know even in DX era Triple H, like I, I was reading about how like they they kind of thought they'd done as much as they could with him, and there was a chance he was going to leave and go to WCW. Like that's a that's a different world, isn't it? If, yeah. uh, if all that happens, um, but yeah, this is definitely my favorite version of Triple H. I think you passed, you just about passed the snob stuff. There's still elements of it there. But like you're more into you're getting into like the, the more DX period. It's certainly towards like the end of the year. Um, yeah, it would have been uh, interesting if he kind of uh, stayed in this role. But yeah, I thought he was good. I thought Mankind was good. And again, I thought he was a Mankind was just a real highlight of watching this period back. Like Joe said, even like the promos backstage where he's throwing in bits of commentary. You know, the the one where he's trying to be um, Steve Austin's partner. He says something mm-hmm. like, you know, Shawn Michaels has got a nice ass, but I've got a nice ass too, Steve. Like <laughs> just like throwing little lines in like that. He's so great that as someone who i bet yeah vince mcmahon was looking at him like why have we hired this piece of shit in 1996 he's so integral to do the f success over like the next few years and like almost despite themselves they're forced to use him aren't they and forced to go with him and he's steve austin's first opponent when he wins the belt the year after like he is so so important to this era i was made up to see a uh, lots of them on the tv He's the, thread, he's the thread that holds them together, though, doesn't he? Mm. Between The Rock, Triple H, and Austin mm. is is his relationship in there and kind of forcing himself into a kind of fourth spot as a draw, mm. um, thinking of or, or what they perceived as a draw. I think as well, like when, you know, we hear all this bollocks in the modern day about no one's grabbed the press ring and all the, all the rest of that crap. Like, what is that ultimately? And it doesn't feel like people have really got the opportunity to do it. But it feels like at this point in time, there were opportunities open and available because the company had more of an open mind because they had to. And you've got Foley there. You've got Austin who have had that WCW experience. They've been around the indies. They've been rejected. They've had issues getting into WWE at this point in time as well. And they're there. And they've got, you know, the WCW opposition to go up against, same management. And it feels like there is really something to prove and something they want to do, if anything, to make this work for them, but also to kind of prove any kind of doubters in the industry wrong at that point in time. And I think at this point in time, like, I think it's the peak year of both men's career, if anything. I think there's an argument you could say 98, but for me, in terms of the in-ring as well, this is the peak for both guys. For sure. Uh, moving on then we had um, probably what would have on any other card for me at least have been the match of the night Uh, I gave it a solid 4 on grapple and it's obviously the great Sasuke, Sasuke, uh, what I think Sasuke is the way uh, Jim Ross continues. Sasuke, yeah, I want it. I, I want a supercut because he says that a lot of times. I think he's really trying hard to get him over it, and it, also it's. I don't know if you noticed it's Ta- Takamichi Noko as well. That's uh, apparently uh, his name. Uh, yeah, so it's not not just in the AEW era that Jim Ross himself is uh, is getting a rug as well. But yeah, I'd love a supercut of that because there's a lot of that. But I tell you what, as far as a match going off there with you know basically cold, I really enjoyed it. I, I think legend is looking back on it the the great Sasuke you know shit the bed but I thought he was fine for his part in the match I thought he was really yeah. good I thought a lot of like his, his offense looked great some of those kicks looked particularly sick I think all it is is like the one bit you remember from this match or at least I do it's when Taka hits that first dive you know that first you know the, the, the Taka Michinoku springboard dive that he always does I think that being so impressive you can almost hear it when you watch the match it's almost like you can hear not a star being made, but you know what I mean? Him grabbing 
the attention of everyone. And I think maybe Sasuke gets left behind a little bit because of that. Uh, maybe it's because the finishes are a little bit lame. It's just a tiger suplex, isn't it? After all the, the awesome stuff that comes before it. Uh, but yeah, same. I would say watching this back with like grown-up eyes, uh, I think <clears throat> Sasuke definitely did his part in the match. You can tell why they liked Takamichi uh, after the match as well. Uh, but yeah, I really enjoyed this one. Went four stars uh, on Grapple uh, how about you, lads? Yeah, same four stars for me. And what I think you just noted it there, Bennett. Well, what is interesting about this, they come out completely clo- cold. The crowd have got no clue who these two people are. And then by the end of the match, you know, everyone's really getting into it. So it is, you know, testament to what a really good match they had. But apparently it was Heyman who was putting over Taka before this match. And apparently they were... According to that same podcast I was listening with Pritchard, he was saying that's who that's who they were most interested in. I'm not quite sure because I think Sasuke is probably the m- most marketable out of the two if you're looking at them from just, you know, them coming out from their entrances. But um, yeah, Jim Ross is responsible for me saying Sasuke for years and not <laughs> knowing how to pronounce his, uh, his, um, his name properly. But yeah, I was a massive Sasuke. Uh, a Sasuke fan, as Joe knows, when I forced him to stay and watch the oh. spring break to main event just so I could see Sasuke, <laughs> even though we'd gone past the point of tiredness into some kind of delirium. But obviously, he's famous for the, the J Cup and his matches in New Japan, so it was crazy to see him on the list for a WA show. But I do think that you know they put on a really good match, and some of the wince inducing kicks um, from Sasuke to Taka is still uh, stand up to this day, I think. Yeah, who? Where's this narrative come from that he shit the bed on the night? Because I've I've not yeah. heard that personally, and like I was, I, my notes here are full of pro- hicks and how much they stand out, if anything. Yeah, I've never heard that before either. That he shit the bed. I've heard that they wanted to sign him, but he was too busy with Michinoku Pro. I think oh, it was okay. more the point that he he out. Oh, okay. I thought I always thought that the narrative was that he because he outshone Sasuke. Because there's probably low yeah, expectations. That's the way Power Slam put it. I don't know if you were reading it at the same yeah. time as BJP. That's, that's the way it was put. And, and that sound, and that's kind of how it sounded to me. Mm. But yeah, I, I think for this. Oh, sorry, Ben. I, no, go on. I was just going to say that. I thought I did think he was great for his part. What was that, Joe? I think as well. Like watching this match. Like I put up until this point, watching through these roars before as well. The two best matches I've seen to this point were this one and that Sabu uh, Flash Funk match again, because they just feel so different. Whereas every other match that I'd seen at this point felt like it was following the same style. It was following the same beats regarding TV matches, which was what most of them were for the most part. And then this goes out there and it's completely fresh. It's completely innovative and it gets over as well. Like the mm. crowd seem, some of the crowd's minds seem like they're kind of blown here. And it's like, yeah, this is the, where wrestling was going at that point in time. And it just feels like it's such a shame that the WWE weren't willing to embrace this and kind of market it properly. And instead it ends up falling on the same old laurels of like, ah, little guys, Japanese guys, whatever, shrug of the shoulders, let's take the piss out of them. You think of what Taka Michinoku became, for example. But it's just the way they use the ring as well. Like they kind of use every aspect of that ring, including the ropes, including the outside area. And you don't see a lot of that stuff at this time in WWF. So, yeah, completely fresh, really interesting match. Yeah. Everyone go four. Were we in agreement on that? 3.75. Fair enough. I, I went four on this one. And it kind of similar viewing it as a kind of moment in time, like you guys have, have said as well. There's a few kind of weird notes. The brawl at the start 
I'm not quite sure whether or not that was a good or a bad thing necessarily because it seemed like they come out, the crowd is cold, the brawl comes out again. They oh, you wake mean up Ma- Mankind that. and the Triple H when they're... Yeah, the it's Mankind a distraction. Triple H brawl. Mm. Distraction. They kind of wake up. I, I really enjoyed the structure of the match. Just the idea of they did the sort of arm work at the start and then it's that first Sasuke kick that they kind of wake up for that. Then there's the other kick, the other kicks that's there. Then there's the aerial dives, and it kind of builds up. But like you say, that that um, the finish itself doesn't feel like it should have had a, a bit more of a dramatic finish as much as anything else. Mm. Um, I was also fascinated listening to Vince because he says "fuck all," other than a few things like "what a samurai warrior." Oh, I, I heard that. that. I heard that. Yeah, well, yeah, twice on there. I also, around that point in time, enjoy the smart fans in the background walking past with their this is work rate signs oh, yeah. <laughs> and other various things going up and down. And the, the arena's perfect for it because there's this just bit there. So it's not getting in anyone else's way. So there's just these couple of blokes fucking constantly like this is the moment they've been waiting for in the entire card where it's like, right, we're going to get our smarky shit out. It's like a lost art uh, uh, sign in the crowd, isn't it? It is. There are a lot of them that grabbed my attention. There was one on one of the roars that said something like, Scott Levy sucks. You're thinking, like, how many people know what that is referring to? But that kid's obviously loving it. Like, smarky signs at this point are kind of gold. Like, that little element of the crowd who were probably understanding the weird shoot promos that were going on as well. (laughs) <laughs> Watching the Survivor Series, one of the things that always stuck in my mind is there was that sign that guy has up of saying, "Why, um, Brett, why wait? Just leave now. Or something <laughs> along that time. And I remember at the time watching it, seeing it early in the show, going, what the hell does this mean? And not knowing, obviously, what was to come later on in the show. And then when seeing that, it all kind of makes sense. Did nope. you guys see that one in the row before this where It was like in the front row and it said something about vote Jeremy Borash. Did it? No. I did, yeah, I did see something about. There was something. Some about girl Jer- keeps putting it up uh, constantly during like the first like half an hour of the show, and it's just it's just something about vote Jeremy Borash, and I'm I had no idea what that was in reference to. Oh. Was he known of? Did he work in the rest of the industry in 1997? He, he can't have surely. No. I'm sure he, he possibly yeah, would have been 2000s. doing kind of online newsletters. He had a job with WCW at the end, didn't he? I know that. Like, right yeah. very end. But 97 feels... Wasn't right he responsible for a lot of their online stuff? Yeah, like... The didn't WCW they get him website. in with Bob Ryder and stuff like that? I, I think he was probably one of those people... You know, you see, like, names who write into the Observer in the letters pages mm-hmm. of the Torch and stuff. I wonder whether there was a name from that. Because I was going to say, like, on that real name point, that's another thing in it. I know you've been reading the Observers from this period, Martin. How much does Meltzer love throwing in the real names? Like, I, that was yeah, such yeah. a <laughs> such a badge of honour as, like, a smart fan in this period. Because this was the year I started buying Power Slam. I think it might have been not lot long after this show I started buying it. And I always remember, like, they put out, like, a little booklet with one of the, the issues of the magazine where it was... Was literally oh, just a yeah. list of everybody's real name and I, I, I everyone would point and laugh at michael hickenbottom for sure michael's was the first one you'd go <laughs> to like but it was all like it was such a big thing wasn't it like such a smarky thing ah i know their real names i don't know the gimmick names and like Meltzer was completely responsible for it 
Oh yeah, definitely. I do remember that booklet as well coming with Power Slam. They used to have a, a few of them back in that time period. And yeah, and it was funny. I remember they used to have that Q and A section as well, and people were constantly writing, going, "Can you list off this person's real name and this person's real name?" And loads of people insisting that Sherry Martell was uh, Rick Martell's sister as well, even though <laughs> there was a question every like every, virtually every month, and Finn Martin was like, "No." they're not and then they were like no no they are sister and brother and it was like oh jesus christ <laughs> yeah was the under was that when ultimate warrior came back was that a different ultimate warrior because i'd heard he died <laughs> oh, yeah <laughs> that was texas tornado mate uh, that's what it is oh god <laughs> it's carry my arrow uh, different time lads different time yeah, it really <laughs> was wasn't it? Uh, but yeah we went from there to another it was for me a surprisingly good match i honestly i wasn't into it like for the first few minutes and then Almost like maybe the work of the lads, but the crowd especially willed it into mm-hmm. into greatness. Uh, Undertaker and Vader. This was, as we said, Joe. The oh yeah, the Undertaker's the champ moment uh, with Vader replacing Ahmed Johnson in the uh, the world title match. Uh, yeah, Vader's WWF run is obviously marred. I think ever since I think his card was marked ever ever since that Shawn Michaels match where Shawn Michaels has the temper tantrum at uh, a SummerSlam '96, and he just kind of seems a bit lost in this period and not as focused on as you'd expect. But he definitely had his flashes of brilliance. And I, while I wouldn't say this was like a, a four star match, I went three point two five on it. Um, but it was a match that I was expecting to go maybe two two and a half at the start, and then yeah, I don't know if it was the crowd being so raucous and the the camera literally shaking at points in this match or just some of the big bombs the uh, the lads threw in as well but yeah really enjoyed this match uh, how about you Martin first yeah I completely agree with what you're saying I think um, Undertaker was a perfect opponent for Vader because he didn't mind it you know much like Bossman from that Spring Stampede 94 event we talked um, a couple of weeks ago he didn't mind you know it being a bit stiff and that and I think they were really good opponents for each other but yeah Everyone talks about this crowd reaction in the main event, but Undertaker's comebacks, that's when the uh, mm. camera starts shaking. And it's like, I'd forgotten that how over, you know, the Undertaker is with this crowd here. Oh, some of those punch flurries that he's doing on his comebacks were awesome. Like, when I was talking about stuff that he hadn't done probably since his Mean Mart days, there were little bits where he was sort of running the ropes and always playing off the momentum of the crowd. Like, it felt like an energised Undertaker match. And, like, pre-97, how many energy-driven Undertaker matches can mm. you think of? Like, I think I he was th- fairly the out of him in 96, wasn't it? Because they had some pretty decent matches where yeah, he was doing some of this stuff. Survivor Series 1 is really good actually now you say that martin when i think back but yeah i thought this was a really really fun match if anything like i'm a massive vader fan like i think there's a really good argument that vader was the wrestler of the 90s uh the only blip on his cv in the 90s is part of his wwf run if anything yeah. and i think that's partly because a lot of the guys there were well like sean michaels was a dickhead and had a lot of political power at the time and a lot of the guys didn't like the stiff stuff but when you look at vader's variety over the period of the 90s like to me i could easily put a good case together for him being the best wrestler of that entire decade and i think this was one of his better wwf matches if anything i think like you said mine ideal opponents for one another if anything vader really made undertaker look great like if there's one thing you can say about vader yeah he's stiff he always makes the other guy look great he gives the other guy a lot yeah sometimes he won't sell but when he does sell 
it really has an impact. And I thought that was clear here, where he wouldn't sell some of Taker's punches at points, but when he does, the crowd go absolutely wild for it. Like, I thought this was an awesome, awesome match. I went three and a half on it. Um, I also like the, the lead into the finish. I like the fact that Undertaker gives him a choke slam, a choke slam off the top, and oh, yeah. a tombstone. Like, mm. Taker clearly liked Vader, clearly saw that Vader was a truly great wrestler, and probably got him a bit more than a lot of the guys in WWE did at this time. Yeah, I think that's fair to say. There's, a, there's that weird yeah. moment, isn't there, where they try to do, like, the tombstone reversal, and that goes wrong? Oh, yeah, yeah. I wondered whether that was the finish and they called the rest an, as an audible. That is a lot to call as an audible, isn't it? Uh, like a second row choke slam and, you know, the choke slam kick out, and then the tombstone. So, yeah, maybe it is a case that uh, the taker just like but even that moment was kind of fine within the context of the context of the match of them being both drained and tired. Mm. That I was kind of like, even though that was the case, it was like, oh, okay, they slipped over. Yeah, I, I agree with you guys, Joe. I feel like you're talking me into three and a half because I went three point two five. Like you, Benno, I had, I just sort of thought I'd relatively low expectations. It was just of the bad memories of the Vader run, and then watching this was just like kind of like a pleasant surprise. To, um, it wasn't the same as the um, Ray Trailer match that he had when we watched the um, was it Bash of the Beach '94? Uh, real name, say, mate, getting into that palace. Sorry, yeah, <laughs> the boss. That, that kind of show. Oh, Leon in this one. Honestly, he's energized, and Mark's deciding to help him all throughout it. It's great stuff. Uh, yeah. I'm sure. And I'm sure Terry and ECW was watching this as well, thinking maybe I'll make it to there as well. Right. Well, Joe, you talk about um, Vader as being maybe one of the wrestlers of the 90s, and, um, you know, he's certainly up there. But did you guys ever watch the match he had with Shamrock at the In Your House before this? Because, fuck me, those guys absolutely leather the shit out of each other. And I'm fairly sure, like, Vader's just... I think it's one of Shamrock's, like, first major matches... So he's still like, you know, transitioning from UFC yeah, to, one. yeah, and they beat the shit out of each other. And I feel like that match doesn't get talked about enough because it's a real, it, Vader's obviously a perfect opponent for Shamrock uh, coming in because, yeah, they two, them two just like lever the shit out of each other in that one. Is that the one that's, is it Undertaker Austin, the main event? Cold is day it like in hell, co- yeah. Cold day yeah. in hell, yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, I know the one. Yeah, that it's an underrated match, that one. And again, Vader, I think, makes Shamrock look fucking awesome in that match. What a man. We'll have to do a Vader podcast at some time. Do you know, get this Vader uh, Benno, that, I'm sold on it. Like I've been watching Vader's UWFI run recently, <laughs> and it makes complete sense that you'd put Shamrock in that match as his debut match, because Vader knew how to kind of work that that kind of work shoot style. Hmm. So yeah, complete sense. But yeah, Vader, I think this run is the only blip on his CV in the nineties, but I also think there are some gems during that run as well. Yeah. Uh, I went, uh, as I said, I went 3.25. Joe, you went three and a half. Uh, what about you two lads? What did you give her? Give this one? Three and a half. Yeah. 3.25. Yeah. Fair enough. Kind of fits in with the, the grapple average is 3.43. Uh, and I think that, yeah, that's fair enough. It was just two big lads uh, throwing big bombs at each other. Uh, Can I make so one last fun. point about this match? Oh, go on. Sorry, I forgot to say. Oh, right. Taker at this point in time, when you put Taker in there, the big man during up to this point, it was usually like, oh, here we go. Here's a big guy who's kind of shit. Let's say uh, fake Undertaker, King Kong Bundy. Um, I'm trying to think. Giant Gonzalez. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was usually like predictable, and it was usually slow. It was usually quite meandering. 
is this the first match Undertaker has with a big guy that's really fucking good? Hmm. Um, I can't think yeah. of anything from 96. No, same. 95, no. Tell that, yeah. Yeah. This would be it, the first it one. It works as a match. Like, I can't think of him having a good match with Sid. Diesel was okay. I can't think of him a good match with, with There could Ed be a corker against Mabel out there. You never know. <laughs> <laughs> Yokozuna? No, no, there weren't any great ones. No. Uh, <laughs> Yeah. Bam Bam, was he around at any point? Kamala. Yeah. They were all kind of the same <laughs> match, though, good. weren't they? They were just the Undertaker slow walk kind of chokeslam tombstone, it's over kind of matches, weren't they? Um, yeah, I think mm. that's a fair point to say. Probably Did they ever song. go with Vader and Foley in WWF? Because obviously they had some great matches in WCW. I can't remember him ever having like um, a major like singles match with those two while they were both in WWF at the same time. I think no, I remember them having a Raw match, maybe. Remember when they were doing like that Tough Man series? I remember them maybe having a match there. But I could be misremembered. Nothing that sticks out, though, you know, like a big match or a big pay-per-view or anything. Don't they tag together at WrestleMania 13? Yeah, because they're both managed by Paul Bearer, aren't they? Yeah, um, yeah. So there's yeah. that association as well. Um, yeah, but yeah, definitely in with the, the Leon love. So yeah, you could do you could literally just do a Vader podcast where you just went from promotion to motion following him around the world because he's, he's had a banger everywhere with everyone. I'll tell you what, in terms of this 90s series that we're doing, if you want to do a Vader episode, if we look at individual <laughs> wrestlers at some point... I'm well in for the Vader episode. I've had a great time watching his UWFI run recently. It's a joy to behold. Honestly, I'm well up for that. Another one I wanted to ask. Did you have a match of Ahmed Johnson, Vader? I can't remember that happening. Mm, no, again, unless it's like a throwaway no. Raw. That's all I can think That of would have been a match I would have been well up for seeing. Mm, he did, they did have some matches on the uh, WWF Express Tour in 1997. <laughs> um, Ahmed, Ahmed Johnson winning. Yeah. In Hamburg. Do you reckon he did the Pale River Point? But a night out that night, I tell you. <laughs> <laughs> and and in Cologne as well, we've yeah. all been to, yeah, at the Sport Haller. Amazing. One of those yeah, visits so when everyone thought he, was, thought he was washed up, didn't he, Vader? And then he went back to Old Japan and had a really good uh, run there, didn't he? To sort of, like, wrap his career up. Because there's that famous photo of him, like, backstage with the belts with that, like, tiny cup of beer in his hand that I think Walter, like, recreated when he won the NXT UK belt. Mm. Yeah, that's awesome. Is that when he faces Masawa of a Tokyo Dome? Yeah. That's a great... Is that 99 or two? I think it must be 99 because 2000's the split, isn't it? Yeah, that's a great match. That sort of year where he goes back to all Japan to prove himself is an absolutely amazing run. Again, I recommend that if anyone's got some time to kill at this point in time. It is an awesome run. Oh, cool. Um, well, I suppose moving on to the uh, the main event. I can't believe we're already here. That's, uh, that's it for two-hour shows, isn't it? It's great, but... This main event, lads, tell you what, I feel like we could spend the next 10 minutes just talking about the entrances. Like, I've had this conversation with you lads before about star ratings, and I had a, a good few conversations with Jamesy on the Match of the Month podcast about star ratings as well. But sometimes I kind of think, like, I came close to giving this five. I didn't give it five as a spoiler. Mm. I'll tell you what I gave it in a minute. But, like, part of it is, I think, I think sometimes with matches, I feel like the entrance... The entrances and the aftermatch can be just as important as what happens between the bell. And I think that's really the case here. Like, we could spend the next 10 minutes on, like, just these introductions. Like, everything about it. Like, the the half family sat at ringside. The national anthem. 
the Americans coming out and kind of getting the, you know getting the negative response, and then just mm. the hearts on the stage. Like, how fucking cool is it when they just it escalates? Like, it starts with Pillman, and he gets a good response. Then Jim Nidart comes out, and I don't think anyone really recognizes his theme music. Everyone forgot that he even had a song, uh, and then he comes out and he gets a great response, and then it's Bulldog, and then Owen gets a response, and then Brett comes out as like the biggest hero in the world, like. That I honestly think that's the coolest Bret Hart has ever came across. Like in that moment, as the leader of the Hearts, and they're all together, and they're all going out there to fight the evil Americans. Like, just the the pomp and circumstance, and just the the way they set the scene here with these entrances is so important to the match itself. And just like one of my biggest memories of WWF from this period is is these hearts of these hometown heroes here. It's all, it's just so fucking great. And I feel like this, this is the peak of a lot of people's careers. It's kind of sad watching it because of how many people you're looking at going, well, he's dead, he's dead, he's dead. Kind of sad from that point of view. 50% of the match are dead. Yeah, yeah. It's kind of horrible when you think about it. And look on the heart team, it's literally just breath that's still going isn't it like yeah it's it, that's sad but like that visual of those lads on the stage like that'll stay with me i must have, i feel like maybe this lockdown's making me emotional i got emotional watching that everton wimbledon match watch on a um, <laughs> match of their day and this got me emotional again today i hadn't even had to drink at that point uh yeah i just thought this was a really special moment and a and a peak of the hearts and i think wwf in canada as a whole probably is a is a fair talking point there I mean, yeah, it's easy to roll your eyes at Brett as, you know, he fully believed in this Canadian hero thing a bit too much, I think. But fuck me. You know, it's like you said, they all get a big ovation, but the individual pop he gets must be like top five loudest of all time. It's just and it just the timing of them doing this angle with Brett, you know, shitting on America, but then being a face around the rest of the world because they had all these shows booked in Canada. So it's just the timing of having that great angle. And then them having all these shows in Canada where it just shows the, uh, you know, the yin to the yang of like him getting these great ovations in Canada and coming back down to America and getting booed out of the building. But I mean, on top of that, I mean, Austin is absolutely in his element. here. I mean, you can tell he's loving every minute of this one. I mean, the rest of the team, they seem a bit confused, don't they, as to be babyface or real, but not Austin, just an absolutely brilliant performance by him. Well, I mean, you talked about star ratings there, Benno, but I mean, even Anvil, who I'm sorry, he's an absolute sack of shit, but even this <laughs> yeah. match... The Rhino, oh, come him. on. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there's, there's a singles match in Raw where he has against Austin that's dreadful, where he even fucks up the Thez press, where, I mean, that just requires him to fall on his back and he fucks that up, but even this match, like, masks how bad Anvil is, and it's just brilliant on every level. I could watch it, like, you know, every day of the week, twice on a Sunday. Mm. Yeah, and it's not even like, you know, when you talk about like potential five star matches, this isn't a match where the execution and stuff doesn't matter. It feels a little bit, there are, there are parts of the match where it's almost like organized chaos or just chaos in general. Like, and I feel like a lot of it, I don't know if you guys got the same feeling, a lot of it feels like it's getting called on the fly. It does feel like LOD went maybe ready to be heels in the match, and some of their moments are a bit awkward. But I feel like the clumsiness adds to it. Like, it's not a, mm-hmm. I don't think it's a perfect match in like maybe the traditional sense but another way it kind of is because it kind of fits like this this weird war in canada versus america thing i mean i'll say it now i gave it 4.75 did did any of you guys consider five or were you near it i've heard people give it and there are i think there's a couple of fives on grapple i can understand why people would go five for it i went 4.75 as well 
top of my notes, I've just written professional wrestling at its finest. Because it's, a, as you say, it's a combination of a whole series of things. And you mentioned about the kind of sloppiness. It kind of makes it feel more like a fight. Yeah. And that they're, and that they're defending the pride of Calgary. And everybody's into it. Those moments when the camera is shaking there. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's so much to kind of go through for this. But in terms of sort of pure emotion, fun, the level of storytelling going on, the fact you've got all these future programs that are there that end up all being derailed with Austin's um, neck injury as well. They hid... When you talk about Neidhart, and I'm in full agreement that he's shit. <laughs> the be- they, had him, they had him in a test of strength spot, and that was the best thing they did with him. And then a lot of the time he's out of the match, and you're like, good. Although, I will say it's heartbreaking looking at Brian Pillman. Yeah. Oh, this. yeah, yeah. It really, it really is. But then... Pillman's job, a lot of it, and he does it. And I think part of the reaction, if you notice, he's winding up the crowd of that entrance and asking them to get louder. And he does it a lot in this match. He like operates as someone at ringside. He's got a really good brain of knowing when to kind of wind things up. And those kind of what weren't heelish moves on the night, but the kind of chicken chip way of diving in and breaking up pins and doing whatever he can to get an advantage. It all completely works to it. So he's kind of masked very well in the match as well. Um, another note we've got on here. I said, I wonder if this match brings tears to the eyes of John Pollock waiting in WH Park. Like, <laughs> whether, whether or not they, they, you'd watch this, because it like the level of like paid nationalism going through that place, fuck me, like crazily hot as well. Um this is yeah. This is the sort of crowd you want to have to it. Yeah, there's there's so much and there's so much I'd like to go into about like the glory that is Bret Hart. Yeah, and Bret Hart as a worker, the timing on his stomps, the timing on his punches, the way that he manages to kind of like get in there as well. The fact that Austin is just loving every fucking second of this because he doesn't have to break character as well. That's the kind of beauty of Austin in this match as well. Is he works completely perfectly within? And Martin, you spoke about it earlier. The timing of this storyline, as much as anything else, yeah, loved it, and also enjoyed it at the very start. And I know there's all of you will have something to say about the match as well. That Cobra Clutch reversal spot at the beginning, like I, I, that, kind of got me into it. And how long is the match? It's Twenty minutes, something like that. Twenty-five. Oh, is that it? it felt longer. Yeah, not 24. in a bad way. I think it's so the entrances just... and the outro, Joe. Maybe, maybe that's what yeah. it is. Yeah, like the presentation of it. Like maybe that's why. That's why. That's why. Like again, but... with my star rate, and I think I'm taking that into account. I feel like that's part of what makes this match so great. But it's the intangible. It's mm. like films that are five out of five. They have an intangible factor. It's not just based around the work and the booking, and that's what this crowd and this atmosphere add. It's a spectacle, isn't it? Mm. Yeah. And how often were in your house pay-per-view spectacles, which is what I think makes it kind of stand apart. Like, is there an in your house pay-per-view that's spoken about as much as this one? I don't maybe mean, Bad Blood, just because just of the house. Yeah, yeah, maybe Bad Blood. Oh, yeah, yeah. I suppose, yeah, the Hell in a Cell and stuff. Yeah, but I think it's those two, isn't it, that get spoken about more than any other. Mm. And, yeah, I think it's the spectacle element that makes this work. And it is kind of a talking point of the match. Like I, I went four and a half, but I wouldn't disagree with anyone who does go five stars because I understand that 
<clears throat> for some people, there may be a bit of added emotion hmm. based on their investment of a time um, and based on their interest in the wrestlers in the match as well. Like, yeah, I wouldn't disagree with anyone who goes for that. But yeah, as a match, I think it's the be- is it the best 10 man tag that WWE have ever put on? I can't think of anything that even comes close yeah, to it. Is it the best 10 man tag ever? I think the say. only ones I disagree with on that are probably some of the War Games matches, okay, like yeah, the 1992. Yeah. Uh, Sting Squadron against Dangerous Alliance match, possibly. Um, so, yeah, it, it's an absolutely spectacular match, and everyone plays their role in it. But also, it's just little things like on the outside as well. Like, I get a real kick out of watching Bruce Hart. <laughs> you know, that's not fun. how desperate he is to get involved in this match. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> um, yeah. and then seeing like Teddy Hart in the, like around yeah. ringside yeah. and the ring yeah. at the end like there are so many David little... Boy Smith Jr yeah oh, yeah, yeah. Well. who is uh, Natty Neidhart yeah well. I spotted her as well so there are so many little like small pleasures that exist within the match and around the match as well that kind of make it for me yeah oh that's it like uh, the whole Bruce stuff is just so fucking great. Like he is. <laughs> I don't know if anyone's got any insight on this. I know Martin, you've been doing a lot of the, the Observer side of research, but like, I'm pretty sure there's no. Like Austin's got no idea what he's doing when he tries to grab him and then tries to <laughs> brawl with him and then falls over and kind of ends up at ring. Ah, the whole thing's just like it's clear. Like even from the start when they're introducing Stu and Helen and he kind of forces Stu's arm up. You know, it's all about getting the camera on himself. Like he is purely just making sure people yeah. know he's there. And he's look trying like to look like a right badass, isn't he, with his, his leather jacket sunk. and his shades and that. <laughs> oh, yeah, well, apparently, man. he was supposed to just throw a drink at Austin and even fucks that up, doesn't he? Because he didn't, like, even throw it in properly. And then, like, he does all that stuff. And then, yeah, and according to Brett's book, he gave him some, like, really stiff, like, kidney shots when they were, like, brawling right at the end of the match. <laughs> amazing like he's working from moment one right until he's at the <laughs> ring at the end like it just he always stunk to me as someone who was just desperate to get a job yeah. off the back of his kind of brother's I, name if it, anything it's not just oh, him yeah. either is it because there's definitely random hearts trying to get involved and you can tell like lod and goldust that aren't quite sure like who's a heart and who's just a fan trying to get involved it's brilliant i love, I love that spectacle of it really adds so much to the match like it, again it adds that like just danger kind of real brawl kind of feel to it um i love that spot as well where, like around where that happens where austin does the um the figure four around the post on owen and mm. it, it kind of they do the whole like brett's brilliant at selling like owen's really hurt and they drag him to the corner and then that moment like the payoff when brett does the figure four to austin and they're on the other side and the crowd go absolutely fucking mental now one of my negatives on the match is LOD because I just feel like they just they break up a lot of cool stuff really quick because I just don't think yeah. they know what to do in this match. They don't know what to do with themselves. It's like the Mate, heels. They're, they're the most overrated tag team of all Ooh, time. I've, I've, I've never understood the appeal of them. I didn't get. I can vaguely remember them when I was a kid in their WWF run. Didn't get it then. Didn't get the shoulder pads. When I've watched them as a as an older man, well, I'd say an older man. I would have been like thirteen when I picked them up again. I just thought, nah don't get it like hit a load of power moves yeah i don't even think they look that good when they hit them i think there's a lot better out there at this point in time i i'm not sure for me what the appeal is of them at all great theme tune though oh yeah yeah i was gonna say i could kind of understand the appeal i've been intrigued you talk about like the kind of back catalog of stuff i'd be interested to see what they did in japan in terms of i've seen it mate it's not great if you ask me really 
Yeah, yeah, like the stuff with um, Power Warrior. Was it Ken? It's Ken. Oh, Kensuke Sasaki. Is it? Yeah. yeah. Uh, give me the Steiners any day in Japan, any yeah. day of the week. It it's funny with this because they do look bloated already at this point as well, and mm. it's and it's odd. Like Martin was saying earlier on about not having mankind in there, and reading Meltzer about this point in time, like there was absolute sort of chaos around having to change the card around so much, wasn't it? And they were really thinking that this was going to be a disaster of a show, somewhat. <laughs> and then it all, and now it's kind of like it's something that's still spoken about in these kind of like reverential terms, isn't it? Mm. Um, you mentioned all that stuff. I was interested. I was watching when watching wrestling with shadows and you can hear um, them going through the match with Pat Patterson and you can see two of the brothers and it's not Bruce. It's another two like Keith and someone else. Ross. Ross. Yeah, possibly. And they're talking about it and they're talking about, Oh yeah, but let him think it's Stu, but don't tell Stu. He'll, he'll love that. And and obviously they do it. And Stu looks fragile as all hell here. Yeah, does he does. Really, at this point. In hindsight, I don't know whether or not you need to do big surprises in front of him. <laughs> <laughs> like run up and have like Steve Austin run up and pretend to punch him. I, I was thinking, well, oh, you're pushing the buttons there, really, aren't you? Even, even Helen, what? for God's sakes, as well. <laughs> like, and she's a twelve kids. Well, Lawler has the killer line at the end, doesn't he, when they're all in the ring? And he goes, Helen Hart is responsible for all of this. <laughs> she, oh, And she hates wrestling. Like, my God. Like, she really had to tolerate a lot. It's funny remembering watching this back, and as a kid I was just like, oh, well, Stu Hart seems like a friendly old man. And then you hear all these horror stories about him, like, torturing wrestlers in, like, the dungeon and things like that, and every opportunity he'd get someone in, like, um, some horrendous, like, submission move. Oh, he was just testing them out, mate. It's just old school. He was a good old bloke. <laughs> yeah, there, you know, if they couldn't hack it, it was on them. You know, it's their problem, not not this. You know, old man getting off on stretching young lads. Uh, yeah, I always found that a bit weird, like really weird. Mm. If I'm honest with you, um, the other thing I was going to say for this one as well, like some of the tropes in this match, like was this the first time? Because it's the first time I can remember that they use that take a guy out of the match, they come back later on trope. Because it felt like they were really trying to get Owen over here, if anything, Mm. as well. Um, And, you know, giving him the win, put a lot of the sympathy on him as well. But it also felt like they wanted a hell of a lot of attention and heat to be on Austin. No one else really, let's be honest, in the match gets a lot of heat other than Austin. And that's great. I'm fine with that. But having Austin come back out as well, Adds that little bit of tension, if anything. Adds that little bit of heat. Like, can you guys think of them using that trope before that? Because it's certainly a trope they overused for years afterwards and still do now. Yeah, no, I can't remember them using it before this. But it's all leading to uh, Owen and Austin, isn't oh, it? Oh, yeah, That's yeah. What yeah. Building up to at SummerSlam, isn't it? Because this is kind of like the end of uh, Brett and Austin, isn't it? Because yeah. I don't think they're really yeah. involved with each other much after this, because obviously Brett goes into the Shawn Michaels lead in Survivor Series. Yeah, and it starts to like allow the Canadians to, che- to cheer Steve Austin. Like, I remember that, like, the, the moment uh, the moment Brett leaves WBF, like, all of a sudden, because they do the night after Montreal's uh, the Raw's in Canada, isn't it? And, like, that's the mm-hmm. first time Steve Austin gets treated like the babyface he's supposed to be in Canada. But I can't think, yeah, I don't think they really touch after this, do they? Um, I know Austin was one of Brett's choices, wasn't he, for, for Montreal? as was one of the people he dropped the belt to. 
but I don't think mm. yeah, they, they come really Why didn't they? Like, in hind, I was watching this, and we've not really spoke about Austin. I think we, we should. Yeah, we but should have that I conversation. I was watching this thinking, why the fuck were they so determined to put that belt on a prima donna who was hard to work with mm. and was temperamental at best at this point in time when you've got a guy there who, to me, feels like the hottest, freshest, most interesting character out there at this point. And you've got this natural feud that had been going on, what, since 1996 between Austin and Brett. You know, it started in sort of September 96, didn't it, with Austin cutting them promos on Brett. Mm. Yeah. Mm. And this if you had the letter S in front of Hitman. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you get what I think like, of Brett Why don't you <laughs> Finish the, why don't you finish this feud with Austin finally getting his big win? I don't know. Like, let's say there was a show in Texas, even a Raw. Imagine Austin beating Bret Hart in the midst of Bret Hart doing this Canadian sort of nationalist gimmick. And Brett dropping the belt to Austin in Texas. It would have been such a massive moment. And I think you probably, if you wanted to have Austin anointed at WrestleMania again, you mm. probably could have had Austin lose the belt and say that DX in your house pay-per-view or at the Rumble in a screw job and have him get it back at WrestleMania. I think they made a massive mistake in being so heavily invested in Shawn Michaels and believing in what Shawn... And Shawn Michaels is one of my favourite wrestlers ever, but Vince seemed to buy into what Shawn Michaels thought he was at this point in time yeah. when the guy was Austin. And, yeah, it's such a shame that we never got that last big Brett Austin match where we see Austin on top after beating Brett. There's a bullshit. I've been waiting for this opportunity for years, though, aren't he? And mm. with all these injuries, all the bullshit with Brett and Sean, he's taking every opportunity, every raw to make him himself really stand out. And like, and he, every segment he's in on Raw and everything that he does is sort of like that's what makes him the star he is. And it is funny that Brett and Sean are like arguing with each other, and they can't even see the fact that this superstar is coming <laughs> up underneath him. Yeah, that's it. Like it, it's it's. The way he kind of comes up as well, like I think I think for me the one thing I would say like is if they because we've got to admit like even even if we might say oh it would have been nice to see Austin beat Brett the way they do do it and being patient and waiting for the next year did kind of lead to the most successful business periods in the company so maybe it was the right decision to wait for Austin I think they, I mean they knew what they had they they knew they had like this you know this. I don't maybe they didn't realize it was a game changing star, but they knew they had this mm. big star. But that's the thing about Austin in this period like, he's so not in the vein of what you would think Vince McMahon would want to push. And it, and not even just that, like, he's so he's a heel, like, Stone Cold Steve Austin, the character. Oh, yeah, he's entirely a heel, like, even on the Raws, like, there's nothing really babyface about him apart from the fact that he's cool as fuck. Like, it's just the fact that they went with that and didn't push against it. I didn't think, ah, this is wrong. No, Brett's justified. Like, I do think they deserve some credit for that, for going along with it. And, you know, it adds so much to the Brett character because he gets to be, especially, you know, a Canadian stampede. He comes across as, like, the most, not smug, but, like, the most justified heel. And, you know, when he walks out and everyone in the crowd is adoring him, you can kind of see the look on his face. Like, yeah, see, all these Americans have been giving me shit these last few months. And I was right all along. Brett gets to be that character because... He's opposite Steve Austin, who, like you said, JP, doesn't change anything about his act for Stampede, Canadian Stampede, because he's a heel anyway. He just enjoys the, the booze rather than the cheers. But he's such a it's such a unique thing that he could have easily mishandled and easily just kind of gone, this is weird, the heel's getting cheered, let's make some changes. I don't think he would have made him a smiling babyface. I don't think Steve Austin would have gone for it. 
But I, I honestly think, like, in the hands of Vince McMahon with everything we know now, like, I'm actually surprised they didn't fuck it up. I'm actually surprised it went as well as they did. And they leaned into it. And they and they went with this guy as their top babyface and centred the roars around them in 1997 into 1998 and kind of recognised that, that they had something here. Like, there is nothing about Steve Austin that, you know, Vince McMahon at the, start, like the end of 1986 with the lockdown and gone, yep, that's going to be the guy that's going to be my next Hulk Hogan. Like, there's no way he saw that, but at least they saw something enough and, yeah, got it right because Lord knows it could have gone wrong so, so easily. It's absolutely, yeah, completely ag- agree with you on that. I just think... It was kind of unavoidable the level of reaction he was getting mm. at that point in time. Like it was, it was undeniable. And I kind of got the idea, like now with the benefit. I think at the point that point in time, I was like, why wouldn't you just put the belt on him without realizing that actually you'd build towards the mania moment, perhaps as, as that would what you do without knowing any obviously all the contract stuff that would kind of ruin it. Um, but it's it's watching him at, at this point in time. It, this is him at the top of his game, really, isn't it? At that point, in terms of injury-wise, is it just the knee and the knee brace? Mm. Um, Apparently, he did, according to Meltzer, he was having neck issues before the Owen. Right. Oh, okay. And then I think you, I remember you making the comment, Martin, in, in our chat about this, why Owen Hart goes for a pile driver that way. I'll, I'll never know. It makes yeah. no sense at all from it. Um, but... He's so great, but I think it, it, it's that kind of thing probably would have been like Hogan where you just can't kind of resist it, even though Hogan was obviously pre-planned, bringing him in from AWA, saying you're going to get the big push at this point in time. The beauty of it is it's so authentic. Mm. It's so natural because it's him and you can tell it's him. And at that point in time, he's had those years of being of his grounding and being a pro and learning to be a really good worker as well. And obviously he has to adapt it all after that injury. But he's like a complete force of nature, although, and I was thinking about this, like about like there is a rock shaped hole on those roars that kind of makes it to the level that it ends up getting to, isn't it? And and where that is. And it just made me think about what a Brett Rock feud would have been like. Hmm. Like I found myself going down that. Not in 1997, right? Oh, no, no. Um, When when does. uh, Yeah, it's 98. If if. Brett doesn't leave and he stays around and then it bring it all back but Michael's fucks all of this up Michael doesn't get in Vince's ear Vince probably doesn't try and get him out of the 20 year contract they get to build that kind of heart Austin feud obviously neck injury stuff and then um, then you would have had the rock for someone to go in there and, and feud in there with Brett but Michael's being the big twat that he is ruins it all, doesn't he? By <laughs> getting it, in his ear. At least he fucks off by much. Yeah. Wasn't the planned main event for WrestleMania 13, Brett versus Sean, and then the planned main event for WrestleMania 14 was Brett versus Sean again, oh. which I always find weird for, say, the 98 WrestleMania, considering how over Austin is. But one of the things I'll say as well, I think sometimes that maybe we buy into the kind of crowning the new guy at WrestleMania, start of a new era. I honestly think you could have crowned Austin earlier by putting him over Brett, and you could have got to that WrestleMania moment in some way still, because the Tyson angle would still have happened. Mm. And I think the Tyson angle, obviously, is the big turning point. And then even if it's Austin going over Michaels instead of Michaels on his way, if Austin's the champ at the time, it still feels like it's the making of him because he's gone over Shawn Michaels in that way. So I just think that 
they they missed out on a big moment at this point in time by not going with it earlier and sort of having him go over Brett in some way. Because imagine, even if they did it in Montreal, imagine Austin Brett in Montreal. Like, that would have been properly special. Like I, I'll be honest, I'm a big fan of the Brett-Shaw match in Montreal. I think it's quite an underrated match. I think mm. as far as a brawl goes, where two guys clearly don't like each other... Mm. You like it's a lot of fun to watch, but yeah, Austin Brett in another big match is something I would yeah I've gone on about it enough, so I'll shut up. But would love to see. I think you're giving him too much credit. I don't think they had a choice other than to go with Austin in '97 and have him on all these segments because literally every card was shuffled around due to injuries. You had Brett with his knee. You had Shawn Michaels. You know, fucking off at every, like, drop of a hat and then, you know, all the stuff they had with Sid. And I don't think they had a choice other than to have Austin. Because, I mean, obviously, as they're wanting to do, they've rewritten history and said Austin was, you know, pushed to the moon straight after King of the Ring. But even SummerSlam 96 is on, like, the free-for-all with Yoko's owner, isn't he? Yeah. And I don't think they had a choice other than to have Austin in all these segments because everyone was going off injured. They were constantly having to reshuffle stuff around. Brett and Sean were brawling backstage and things, so I don't think the other he's all the other at this point, isn't he? He'd have yeah. been doing strap matches with Savio Vega still, <laughs> wouldn't he? And all that. Oh, yeah. a good match though, that. <laughs> it is. On the undercard like, of Brett Sean, twenty-seven. I enjoyed seeing the formation of Los Bariquas. <laughs> I didn't. Had a minute, JP. But one thing I wanted to say as well is on the Michaels fucking everything up. Think about the amount of matches we didn't get that we mm. should have got. So, like, yeah. Austin Michaels at King of the Ring 97 is a, I think it's a great match. It's a shame it doesn't have an ending. We never got another great Austin Michaels match. I don't think the WrestleMania 14 matches up too much. What was back no. most of it? It feels like we should have had a series of matches between those guys. Brett and Sean have a terrible match at WrestleMania 12. Then they have the Survivor Series match. Other than that, what other matches have they got? Survivor Series 92, they have a really good match when Sean yeah. Michaels and what he becomes... But other than that, there aren't. I can't think of any real matches between them other than when Shawn Michaels was in the Rockers and Brett was in the Hart Foundation. So it feels like a really kind of wasted feud, if anything, in terms of the actual number of matches that they had together. And it just feels like there was a lot of potential matches that could have taken place around this time that didn't take place. Imagine a big Austin Vader match at some point mm. in time. That feels really special. Brett and Vader, I can't remember having a great match at this point in time either. Like, yeah, it's it's such a shame when you've got this great era, but it could have been even better than what it was. But then at the same time, did the kind of manic uh, sort of nature of it make that's, it what it was? Would it that's what makes it what it, it is. Yeah. Yeah. That's what I think as well. I think without like these parts falling into place and Shawn Michaels losing his smile and pissing off and... Like, like I suppose you said there, Martin. You know the idea of okay, you know Vince didn't have the choice to go back to Sean and Brett again, so he kind of had to go with Steve. Like I, I do think like a lot without all of that, without it all kind of falling in the lap, and without things falling the way they did, I do wonder if there'd be a butterfly effect there. If you went to nineteen ninety seven and tinker with all this stuff, do they not do? You know, the, 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 like, 1998, 1999, 2000 are the most successful periods of the company. Like, do they happen? Do they get in their own way if you start messing around with things? You know, the fact that that even, even happened. Because um, the big thing I think about Steve Austin, too, is, like, he is in the on these 1997 shows, and we had to go at the USWA, and I might actually uh, have a go at Los Bariquas, I'm afraid, JP, in, in a little bit. But I feel like Steve <laughs> Austin 
is the most 1997 about everything on this show. He He's yeah. just waiting for the rest of the show to catch up with him. And that doesn't happen Definitely. really until 1998 yeah. either. Um, so, yeah, I think a lot of those things kind of had to, to fall into place for it all to work. But, no, I would have killed for it, yeah, an, an Austin Vader match, an Austin Brett match, because when Austin does eventually get the belt, they kind of have to repackage Foley, don't they, and go straight to that. And then you get a lot of Undertaker and Kane, and you would have killed at that point for, you know, Vader to be strong enough to be his opponent or, you know... Even for Shawn Michaels to be around at that point, for Bret Hart to still be around, um, yeah, in, in a dream world, maybe that's where I'd uh, maybe want those matches. But yeah, I do think yeah, the some Steve Austin feels like he's a a couple of years early, and the company just are in their own way and almost need to catch up more than anything. Yeah, uh, I completely, completely agree with you there, Ben. It's it's interesting that like what they would have done with Bret going into the Attitude Era, because even some of this stuff when you know when. When DX form and that, he looks really sort of like out of place in some of these uh, situations in Raw, especially in Survivor Series. Well, I think with Brett, like, and his WCW run, obviously they used him really badly. But to me, it feels like by sort of 98, Brett Hart's had his day. Like, he's still got something in the ring, but he was kind of that quintessential 90s wrestler that didn't feel like he was ready to step into like, the new era. It felt like he kind of had his time to me. And I always found Brett kind of cringe <laughs> in WCW. And you look back on some of the stuff he does there, and it never, to me, feels natural. It never feels right. I do think if he was in WWF at the time, yeah, he probably would have hated some of the stuff that was booked. But I think he would have adapted that character because there is that little bit more attitude to what he's doing at this point in time. There is that little bit more aggression. There is that little bit more that feels adult. It feels like he does fit. So I I just think the WCW move was the worst thing he possibly could have ever done. And, you know, hindsight's a wonderful thing. But I don't know. I think he would have been fine if he stayed in WWF. How many and I think years? he would... Go on. I was sorry. I was going to say, how many years on the 20-year contract did he have to actually wrestle for before like he probably would was it? Yeah, so he might... Like, he easily could have retired. He could have retired by the time of 99 at that point in time. And maybe stepped behind and done creative, and then that's a whole other world as well. Because wasn't that that was that was to be the role, wasn't it? Is then he mm. would go into creative. Then at that point, he is a wrestler, um, JP. You know, yeah, exactly. <laughs> it all would have been bullshit. Ninety nine also wasn't a time for wrestlers, really. Uh, that's true. Yeah, they could have done with it, it. To be honest, it's all. It's ultimately the beauty of the Hart versus Austin feud is you've got Brett from the early nineties, and I remember it and really liked Brett, and it's. Primarily, I always when I think of Bret Hart, I've, I've said it before. It's the five-minute exchange with Ted DiBiase at the end of the match that the Undertaker debuts in at, at Survivor Series '90, as kind of switching me on to him. And then the perfect match, which I haven't gone back and watched, and may not stand up. The SummerSlam one. The SummerSlam one. I haven't seen it in a very long. The time. King of the Ring one's better. The King of the Ring '93 one, yeah. but the SummerSlam one is good. Um. But so those are the kind of memories. But then what you've got, and it's it's like what what you said, um, Benno, about Austin being nineteen ninety seven. He's late nineties. He's what he's like the evolution of the zeitgeist. And you've got the clash between the two, mm. and because the two actually like each other, they really make this feud work. And honestly, there would have been more mileage in it as well. You would have perhaps had a desperate Brett knowing he's broken down and retired. And that Austin's taken over, wanting to have that one last match with him, you know. There's, uh, but this is all obviously entirely hypothetical. 
<laughs> but did you say Nine Seven's one of Brett's like best like in ring as well? Obviously, all the character work and stuff is probably like his best. But like you look at some of the matches he had, there's that four way for the belt at that in your house. That's a good match. Obviously, there's a match with Austin at WrestleMania 13. There's this one. I quite like the uh, two matches he has with Undertaker at SummerSlam and one night only. When's the That's- Patriot? Ground That's Zero. The late, yeah. Or is it or is it bad blood? It's bad blood or ground zero. There's a tag match on one of them, isn't there? That Brett is it like mm. a flag match? Is it Brett and That's right. Bulldog yeah. against Patriot and someone? I think it's neither and Bulldog growing for the Canadian flag, whereas neither of them are Canadian. I think I remember that being kind of the weird <laughs> the weird thing about that that uh, that match. Um, but yeah, it's it's just a, yeah. the Patriots one, isn't he? Where he's very USWA, like that's he gets over, like that's oh, surprising mate, that he gets over. Global, yeah, oh yeah, he was global. all over those global tapes that Paul Brown got me, all over them. He came from all Japan though, like he'd been in all Japan just, but like I think he Del Wilkes, yeah, and the observers I was reading around this time, they he just formed a new group in all Japan with uh, Kabashi and Johnny Ace, and he left the group very quickly to come and sign with WWE. So it felt like he was going to get a big push at All Japan at that point in time as well, but chose to come here. And then what happened to him? Did he sign like a three-month contract or something? I don't know, because he has the match with Brett, and it feels like he's pretty much gone. But then I can remember hearing, he might have said it later on, that he had a lot of issues with drugs and, and whatnot. At the demons, top. as they put it in wrestling. <laughs> the old demons. Right, demons. okay. Um, but yeah, Martin, going back to your point. I was, I, demons, that could be quite funny. <laughs> I do think it's probably Brett's, arguably, arguably his best year as a wrestler in WWF. And I think it's a variety thing as well. You look, you've got brawls, you've got technical classics. As a character. You've got him working with a variety of guys. Look at The Undertaker compared to, say, Austin and the difference in style and what he's doing. I think he gets some of the best, at that point in time, I think he gets the best matches of Undertaker's career out of him. Um, then you've got the Michaels match, which is like this brawl. You've got this moment as well. It almost in hindsight feels like it was a great swan song to his WWF career or, or in a way. It's definitely his best oh. character work. Like, Bret Hart yeah. wasn't this good a promo as a baby. He was a solid babyface promo, but like, it's another level, isn't it, as a heel? Like, on these Raws in general and the, the Raw after Canadian Stampede, just generally, like, he is as a character. I think he shows more, I don't know, traditional microphone career he's always had charisma but you know what i mean like as far as being confident on a microphone he was always fine but like he as a heel in 97 like it's it's next level as a character i think for breath like it's it's my favorite favorite run of his definitely he's fired up mm. and he's got reason to be fired up at this point because he's having brawls backstage of a wanker uh <laughs> <laughs> But at the same time, you know, he's fighting with Vince as well. I mean, he's got this Canada thing. It feels like it's kind of him, like, unchained, if anything. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, if you were to give America an enemy, you'd shove it right in Pittsburgh. That's, like, <laughs> one of his promos. Oh, it's amazing. Uh, but, yeah, he's great. I mean, just to very quickly go back to, like, the Canadian stampede, the one thing we, we didn't really mention too much is just I, I love the, the, the closing, like, thing of it you know to go to brett brett is like this just utter hero every heart you can think of like you guys listed off you know your natties your your teddy hearts like all kinds of anonymous family members just all in the ring like what a 
what a moment. Look, imagine their family parties. It beats my Auntie June's Christmas family parties. Like, all them lot together in the same house. I hope it happened. I hope they all went for a big night out after um, Canadian Stampede. And they carried the, uh, the celebrations going on through the night. I, I love that visual. And I loved, loved, loved It's one of my favourite visuals of all time. Is Steve Austin coming back and trying to fight them. And then getting led off in handcuffs. Yeah. Giving the fingers, like, through the handcuffs. Like, that's the bit when I said about me, uh, me mum busting in my bedroom and telling me to, cut, to, sh- to shut up. That's the moment where I'm screaming for Steve Austin, like when I was a 13 year old kid. Like, that is just such a great, great moment. And just, yeah, it's just a perfect close to the pay per view, isn't it? And just a perfect encapsulation of like what this period was. It's, the, it's bits like that that made me think Austin's the greatest wrestling character ever. Mm. Like, it's just those little moments, those things to take you by surprise. The way he looks to add something extra to it as well to get himself even further over. Like I think it, Austin's often underrated at how smart he was as a wrestler and as a character as well. Like, yeah, he's he's someone that I well and truly love, and sometimes forget just how how much I do love him. And going back and watching this stuff was a joy for that. And even the next night on Raw, Brett's promo that opens the show, mm. where he basically brings uh, the Heart members out, yeah. is great. But then the way Austin interrupts that as well and just plays into the story from the night before. Oh, it's so good. It just feels like they found ways to constantly add layers throughout the year to this Brett Austin feud. And it, you just sort of never want it to end. Like uh, at this point, even though we've done this podcast, I'm going to carry on watching these rules from this period because I've enjoyed the Austin. Well, I've enjoyed Austin so much. And it's weird because the Raw's leading in. Brett isn't really on any of them. I think he's on one of them. So it he's feels like you me. Yeah, and he had the fight with Michaels backstage as well, which is why they both aren't there for bits of it. So it just feels like there's not been enough of that feud in the build-up. It feels like it kind of gets going again after Canadian Stampede, if anything. Hmm. Yeah, yeah. I, I just love this period in general. I, I just love it. I, I would also say as well, part of the reason Austin stays so hot, and I'm not sure if we've gone into detail on it, but the, the actual ending of the match and the way that it's booked, because I remember being shocked that Austin would be the one to take the pinfall and the fact that Owen comes out looking the hero, coming out at that sort of um, uh, coming back injured with the leg and everything else, but and they and it's like watching it and then having seen a bit of the wrestling with shadows, all these great minds working around the match, I think between Austin Brett and Pat Patterson and being creative and all of them being on the same wavelength of what to get and what reaction to get. And you mentioned about, about Austin being clever as well. It kind of helps that, you know, he's got these other kind of minds in there to kind of help grow. And somebody who, having seen someone like Brett, seeing someone who takes the idea of being a star seriously and about, and about presenting it was probably like a sort of a big help in sort of helping him ultimately progress to the mega star that he ended up being. Mm. Indeed. Did you guys manage to see that row that's like that that's where put Michaels over the edge where like um there's a few stories out there about it, but basically it Brett's in the wheelchair in the ring and Michaels comes down to the ring and Brett just fucking spends ten minutes telling the crowd like what a twat he is and no oh, he's crap, Sean Michaels is rubbish and apparently Sean was supposed to keep him out of the chair, but the time rolls oh, out yeah. the show goes off the air and Brett 
reckons that he missed his cue for it. But watching it back, he literally is just going on and on and on for about 10 minutes. And then obviously Sean's like, right, fuck that guy and blah, blah, blah. I can't believe he did that to me live on TV and everything. And it is it is funny how we all think like, oh, Brett was the nice guy and everything. And it was all Sean. But still like, oh, did you really miss your cue or did you think I'm going to show him this time? <laughs> oh, you know, It's that childish, but Michael's probably deserved it. Yeah. Yeah. In the same way that it's not necessarily a good thing to go and belt the bully, but can't really be too surprised when it happens every once in a while. I, I and Michaels did behave like a dick. I couldn't believe the reference that on TV, that Vince McMahon likes it to cameras, like, yeah, so Brett and Sean aren't here because they had a fight backstage, and we believe Brett Hart was the aggressor, but, you know, they're, they're, they're not going to the be hotline, that's what it's all about, isn't uh, it? The hotline, yeah. pushing the hotlines. Get that money appeal to us, far fans. Oh, that's, yeah. That's the game. I've got that's to say, the real Monday Night War, them versus Mean Gene. <laughs> versus Gene, yeah. I was going to say, lads, I can't believe we've actually gone this far, and we, we haven't, um... Talked any gang wars? Uh, oh, <laughs> that's the uh, coming. that's the missed bit, isn't it? From this period, uh, I know you're a uh, we talked the nation of it, but I know you're a big fan of the uh, the other gangs, Joe. Oh mate, I fucking love a bit of gang warfare. Oh, I hate uh, it so much. What an awful but brilliant feud gang <laughs> warfare was. Like I gotta say. When I realised that I was going to watch the uh, Raw where the DOA first formed, I was I was very happy. Uh, hearing that those bikes revving for the first time, coming through that entranceway, seeing a gang of jobbers basically on their Harleys revving them up, and then getting in there for a brawl. Ah, oh, it was brilliant. Like what an awful feud that seemed to go on forever. Mm. But I kind of love every minute of it at the same time because the promos are often so bad and so all over the place and so rambly like ron simmons is a pretty bad promo he just sort of rambles and seems to forget what he's saying a lot of the time uh and then to introduce the los bariquas where savio vega was fired up to bring his boys in after getting stabbed by the nation ah oh, gang warfare what a feud and a cracking video package documenting the uh, chaos of gang warfare that had been taking place on raw in the weeks before and all i was thinking was four match card you could surely have fit a gang warfare match on this card couldn't you <laughs> i was kind of expecting it to be honest with how much they'd done with them in the build-up to it and um, honestly like i to be fair to the DOA, and I'd, I'd misremembered this, I thought they were never over. They're over that first appearance. Like, when they first come out, I, mean, I think it's just God, the bikes. Yeah. I think the bikes are over JP more than maybe the stable. Yeah. But, like, they're they're over quite a bit, like, in that that um, that little intro. I think that's, uh, that's like, the peak of it. And then Savio Vega comes out in his white vest and his white pants. <laughs> and I remember, I, again, I, I distinctly remember watching it going, oh, my God, Savio Vega's going to come out with three lads who look like him, isn't he? And then three lads in <laughs> yeah. white vests and white pants come out, including the hairiest man on planet Earth. Like, they could <laughs> they could not have been less cool, less barricos. Is it, is it um, Jesus who's the hairy one, or is it Miguel? I don't know. Oh, terrible. Terrible. I, I t- tell you what, I had a bit of a theory on this one as well, right? So I'm watching this, I'm thinking, gang warfare bikers you've got this uh what you call oh, it, i know where you're going <laughs> style group you've got the, the latinos here i was thinking 1997 <laughs> there was a tv show that i think all of us i don't know about you martin but me jp and ben are certainly big fans of that david in 97 was this the wwf with their finger on the pulse of what was going on in you know prestige tv at that point in time and i was thinking was this someone watching oz 
and thinking, right, let's go have an Oz gang style <laughs> storyline. And I was getting very excited thinking, oh, this was definitely Oz influence. So I had a little look at the uh, date of the debut episode of Oz. Do you want me to tell you when it was? Go on, go on. So Canadian Stampede took place on the 6th, I think it was the 6th of July, 1997, right? Yeah. Oh, was it the 5th? It was one of the two. Oz premiered on TV, unfortunately, on the 12th of July, 1997. Wow. So a week later oh. was the debut of Oz. But then I had a theory that, I don't know, Vince Russo or Bruce Pritchard or someone or Jim Cornette got some advanced copies from, you know, <laughs> nice. a contact at HBO. And they were like, right, here we go. This is what we're going to be doing. Yeah. What a week that would have been, though. Canadian Stampede followed by this. I'll tell you what. Batman and, and Robin. Yeah, Batman and Robin came out that week as well because my mate, one of my best mates' birthdays is the sixth of July, and on his tenth birthday, we went to see Batman and Robin at the cinema for it. So what a what a week that was. Uh, maybe it's the other way around. Maybe the Oz writers were watching WWF and were influenced. Although that's quite the turnaround for 1997 <laughs> to, uh, to get the yeah. show out. Oh, amazing. Are you an yeah, Oz fan? Unfortunately, Mark? Ron Simmons isn't like the Adabisi of uh, of WWF somehow, is he? I think it's Arvid Johnson, maybe. Uh, uh. Are you an Oz oh. fan, Martin? Oh no, I've obviously heard all about you guys chatting about it, and I remember it. I do remember it being on Channel Four back in the day. But yeah, it's one of those shows that you know when everyone tells you how great it is, and you keep meaning to go back and watch it. So yeah, it's definitely on the list of shows I need to watch. Oh mate, it is dated in the worst way possible. (laughs) (laughs) I still love it because it's hilarious. It like you can kind of laugh at it now, and it gets so bad as it goes on. But I don't know if you get that much enjoyment out of it. Like, if you were to watch it now. Yeah. That is a problem. Um, I've got the whole box set here. I don't know when I'm ever going to be in the mood to watch it. <laughs> you and the lads, mate. I'm not making my lads watch ours. <laughs> Why I mean, not? Be, be what, an the one message you do get from it is I want nothing to do with being inside an American prison. I can tell you that much <laughs> for fucking true. Uh, um, anything more then on the 1997 WWF? Or... This was another fun one, wasn't it? Lads, I enjoyed this. This is uh, oh, what a period. What a period in time, eh? WCW was great. WWF had its faults, but it was great. Only ECW to look at next, uh, I think, from this year. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, uh, well, the one... show they're promoting in this, Hardcore Heaven, is shit. Uh, is it? Maybe the last ECW, I think, is shit in '97. Yeah. Is it? Oh, that's a shame. I've got a weird memory of it being good, but maybe that's me watching the Bravo 30-minute highlight show with uh, with Rose Tinted Spectacles. Was it? Um... Oh, it's barely legal. No, oh, yeah. And, there you go. and November to remember. Uh, November to remember's got okay moments, mm. as far as I can remember, but it probably doesn't stand up like most of ECW. <laughs> oh well uh, anything else anyone wants to mention uh, from this yeah, period it's then? a real shame with Armour Johnson when was he released because he went to WCW in like 2000 didn't he or 99 he wasn't maybe? around for that much longer because he's not on the Wrestlemania 14 card and I can't remember afterwards but I was watching this thinking it's a real shame he wasn't in Brawl for All even great. <laughs> <laughs> I would have been gassed after two minutes, wouldn't he? That's oh. why it would have been great. Yeah, <laughs> Twenty was, seconds, mate. He was gone in '98. Uh, his last match was at the uh, No Way Out of Texas in a uh, him Ken Shamrock decide and DOA beat Nation of Domination. Oh, that's the first one where they get rid of the In Your House branding for like a B pay-per-view, isn't it? That one, I think. Uh, yeah, it was, it, yeah, In Your House 20, it's on here. I remember him doing a one-off with Steve Austin on like a Raw. They brought him back for like one episode. Because he remained in the intro, didn't he? He's in that intro, like the, the cool 1997 warehouse intro. 
Um, great intro. Oh, it's great, yeah. That that intro's on here because Warzone came out this year as well, didn't it, for PlayStation 1? And he's all over that too. Like, his in, unintelligible promos are all over that. Those videos still do the rounds uh, on Twitter and they're like, uh, yeah, he was a big part of that game. That game's like basically 1997 all wrapped up. Terrible game, but cool period to be a part of. Um... But yeah, if there's if there's nothing else, I suppose uh, we should get out of here. Fuck, it's another one. This lads, it, it's been so much fun. I could probably find another reason to talk more. Nineteen ninety seven, mm. for another hour. But I suppose we've got to. Wrap oh, it up we've, at some we've point. gone much longer than the pay per view itself. <laughs> we have, you know, we <laughs> are we are forty minutes past the length of the pay per view right now. Yeah, wow, uh, amazing. That's how much fun. So we yeah, you could even throw in that Blackjacks, uh, what is it, the new Blackjacks versus nah, the Godwins. <laughs> yeah, and it still wouldn't be the length of Andy that. Ogden gave that one star, so that tells you everything you need to know about that. Uh, Good on him for on. tracking it down. <laughs> and yeah, I was going to say, I don't know when he's dug that out. Uh, I'm very managed to find it. And yeah, there's quite a, a few other uh, one-star ratings on there, so he's uh, he's definitely yeah. not alone there. I did want to say... As well for that Canadian Mike. Stampede main event, four point five four is the uh, the grapple mm. average. So not quite a five, but close, close. Ah, uh, oh, I tell you what. Sorry to distract. I think that the free for alls were on some of those old VHSs. Yeah, they were. Yeah, mm. yeah. So I reckon Andy Ogden's got an old VHS or one of the Silver Vision tanked classic series, which I was a big fan of in the early two thousands. Do you remember those? Yeah, I can picture like on the cover, like includes the. The uh, the free for all match that type of thing. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Maybe I have to thank Andy because he's the reason I'm getting to see these shows. That's all I'll say about the man. <laughs> <laughs> uh, right there, before we go, then Martin, uh, anything to plug on the uh, on the post side or just in general? Well, um, we have got um, a pretty interesting show coming up next mm. week, but I think there's going to be an announcement about that around Sunday Monday. But Andy Ogden will be joining us on that one. But suffice to say. Uh, James has uh, put an interesting spin on um, on a concept show. So, yeah, wait for the announcement for that to come this weekend. Ah, there you go. Yeah, it's going to be loads of fun. I can't wait. Uh, yes, keep an eye on the post uh, Twitter for that. Um, and, yeah, I'll, I'll plug as well. Just related to Jamesy. I did the uh, the first episode of Jamesy's Match of the Month podcast this week. Got the honour of... Great podcast, uh, got to say. Yeah, now I'm a bit stuff. biased, but great podcast. Oh, thanks very much. Yeah, I, lo- I love doing it. Jamesy's the man, isn't he, when it comes to your uh, your Match of the Month stuff? Uh, I was just there to make up the numbers. He's going to uh, take that podcast and run. Uh, I think you're going to be doing the next one, JP, or at least you're definitely coming up. Um, and obviously, I am, uh, and I feel almost obliged to somehow fit in mid-2000s Ring of Honour, even though I'm the least appropriate <laughs> person for that oh yeah that was i was impressed how you worked it in <laughs> oh yeah always always when it's me and jamesy but yeah we were laying off the real main event of joe kabashi well done well, good booking hang on for that one for a for a future period so yeah we've uh like i say we're stealing all the post lads here martin on this jamesy on that uh but yeah jamesy's going to be on the network well it is a network now i suppose i've changed the uh the name of uh, the podcast feed at all uh, but he'll be on monthly yeah. doing his match of the month podcast uh he's going to be catching up for the time being so we did january there'll be a february show coming should be a march show coming but those this march april may period does get a little bit fuzzy so uh, i think james has got some creative solutions to that as well so yeah check that out if you haven't already follow martin on twitter at bushby zero one jp follow you at jpgp unless you've got anything else to plug just that no just Continue. just that Okay, yep, there you go. Follow JP. Uh, and yeah, follow it. Follow me at Benson Richard Lee. Follow the Grapple app at Grapple app. And yeah, if you've watched Canadian Stampede 2, do get your ratings in and, uh, and join in. And let's see if we can get that uh, that main event marked up. 
a little bit. But yeah, on the, we'll be back with Spotlight. Uh, I think it's probably going to be a Monday night recording just so we can get that Hellscape Money in the Bank match uh, filled in. So look out for that on Tuesday. And uh, yeah, just keep an eye on the network for, uh, for more from us. But yeah, that's it for us for another show. We'll see you again soon. Bye. Are you ready to meet the moment? Ozzy and our friends at Chevrolet are proud to present Real Talk, Real Change to help foster racial equality in America. And we're inviting you to help. Join me, Carlos Watson, as I talk with key leaders from across the country about racial disparities in America's healthcare system. Look for The Carlos Watson Show and Real Talk, Real Change on YouTube and subscribe. Or download The Carlos Watson Show wherever you get your podcasts.